Hello Canada and the rest of the world and welcome once again to the Netflix podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Netflix in Canada. I'm your host Dylan Clark Moore and today we're going to be talking about 2016's Christine. That was way more sinister than I meant it to sound. Today's episode of the Netflix podcast is brought to you in part by Springboard, London, Ontario's premier digital creative industries development program. Visit joinspringboard.com for more information. The Netflix podcast is also a proud member of the Electric Streams podcast network. For more insights into streaming media like Netflix, Amazon, and HBO original series, subscribe to Electric Streams Media on your podcast platform of choice. Before we get into things, I'd like to issue a handful of warnings. First, a content warning for this discussion. As the movie and our conversation about it deal with a graphic depiction of suicide. Rather than suggesting times to skip around to, I would advise anyone who may find this conversation triggering to feel free to either stop if they feel they've heard too much, or simply skip this episode and check back in a couple of weeks for the next one. I'd love to have you listen, but it's much more important to me that you feel okay. As well, if you do find yourself in need of support surrounding the subject of suicide, please check the episode's show notes for resources and crisis center contact information, namely suicideprevention.ca for Canadians and suicidology.com for our American listeners. Second heads up, I just want to say that part of this conversation involves discussion about mental health and personal experience. Please do not interpret any opinions shared on the show to be professional or medical advice. Uh, Third of all, as usual, I have a filthy mouth and some of the language in this episode may not be suitable for all listeners. And fourth of all, in addition to talking about Christine, this warning is a lot less serious than everything else, but we are going to be spending the first chunk of time of this episode talking about Marvel's The Punisher. So if you just came here for the main event, you can jump forward to around the 35 minute mark or so if you want to get straight to it. Now that that's out of the way, let's get into the episode. I'm back again with a back-to-back appearance from the one, the only, the incomparable, Jeremy Hobbs. Welcome back, Jeremy. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Uh, Now, Jeremy, normally I ask the icebreaker question about what you've been watching on Netflix, but you actually came prepared. You specifically said we need to set out a chunk of time (laughs) because I want to talk about The Punisher. We talked about it. Right, uh, right. You 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 mentioned The Defenders and how much you were looking forward to The Punisher series last time. So we, yeah, I mean, we okay. don't want we don't want to take up the whole episode with it, right. but I mean, general impressions, ideas. Well, okay. Um, basically, uh, for anybody that that hadn't listened to the last podcast we did, um, the Punisher was basically my favorite uh, childhood uh, comic book. I don't want to call him a superhero; it's like an antihero or something like that. He's my favorite comic book character when I was a kid. Before I discovered kind of like independent comics like Daniel Close and Charles Burns and stuff like that, when 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 my only arenas were basically like Marvel and DC. 
Uh, the Punisher was just my favorite character. I just, uh, you know, I thought he was very complex compared to most sort of like do-gooder superheroes and so forth. Um, and so I was always really fascinated by him. I, I, I had all the, the issues when I was a kid. I think at one point I had like every single thing the Punisher was in. I had like the, the original miniseries. I had the... Uh, the regular like Punisher comic, like the Punisher. I had the Punisher War Journal. I had they're doing these ones like the Punisher Armory, the Punisher Annuals, and also I had and I had all the crossovers he did. I had the Frank Miller Daredevil run and 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 the Punisher magazine and all the stuff. Uh, so I was I was right into it. Uh, and the thorn in my side, uh, my whole life basically, is that they've they've done so many iterations of comic book movies, you know, Marvel and DC, and then reboots and and everything. And um, they've 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 attempted the Punisher so many times, and every single time it's been just god awful, basically, <laughs> right? Which is really really annoying, you know, because of what how much potential there is with this character, because he's like a morally ambiguous character, and and he doesn't he's not bound by morality, and and you know like you know like Spider Man or Superman or whatever, you know, they always have to do good things and, and uh, you know, live to a certain kind of moral code, whereas, like, the Punisher is a complete gray area, you know what I mean? He can basically do anything he wants, uh, you know, just because of the whole nature of his character and everything. And so, you know, to me, I always thought those kind of moral ambiguities were fascinating. But they did um, a Punisher movie in 1989 with Dolph Lundgren, and, it, and it's pretty fucking bad. <laughs> um, I, I've been told upon revisitation that it's not as bad as everyone thought it was back then. But, but basically, it's like the Punisher without microchip. I don't think he ever has the uniform with the, with the skull shirt on. He might at, at one point or something. But essentially, he's just this guy that lives in the sewers. And he's just down in the sewers, like, naked, meditating and stuff. And um, it's just kind of, you know, I mean, it's kind of Punisher, but not really. And then um, in 2004, they did another version with Thomas Jane. Um, and it's maybe even worse. I don't know. It's like, no, they're, they're, they're pretty equally bad. But, uh, but I, I thought, I actually thought Thomas Jane was, was a fairly decent Punisher. I thought his heart was in the right place. He kind of looked like the Punisher. And apparently Jane's a big Punisher fan. Uh, in real life, um, and, but that movie w- is just god awful as well. Like, they changed the backstory. He starts out with blonde hair at the beginning of the movie. Like it's just, it's so bad. John Travolta is the villain. Um, it's really terrible. And uh, and then they put out uh, one in two thousand eight called The Punisher War Zone, um, which is it was probably the most like actual Punisher because they had microchip and jigsaw and all this stuff. And, um, it was super insanely violent, almost like to an absurd degree. Uh, you know, and, and it, it most resembled like the comic book, but it was also completely terrible, just God awful. And so you have like these three attempts at doing the Punisher, all of which have just failed miserably. Just all awful for different reasons. Yeah. For completely different reasons, all terrible, um, the interesting thing uh, is that the fans, I guess, I guess all the fans kind of liked Thomas Jane as the Punisher, um, and Thomas Jane himself, I think, was was a big fan of the Punisher, and I, I think he himself didn't think that the film that he was in really did the character justice or whatever. So, I think some fans, or maybe a fan or something, like wrote a script for a little ten minute fan short called Dirty Laundry and sent it to Thomas Jane or whatever and said, you know, would you do this? And he said, yeah, I'll, I'd love to. And they actually got Phil Joanneau, um, who's a, who's a relatively well-established director. He did that film um, State of Grace with Sean Penn and Gary Oldman and stuff and some various other things. 
um, they actually got him to, to direct it. And, and that thing, this was before uh, the new John, John Bernthal Punisher and Daredevil came out. This was, this was a few years before that. They put out this little like 10-minute short on YouTube called Dirty Laundry. And this 10-minute short um, was at the time easily like the best Punisher thing that ever existed in, in, in terms of like, you know, watchable media. And it was like a lot of fun. I hate that it, it used like CGI blood. You know, I, I just have a thing about CGI blood being awful. But, but uh, it was really fun. It was like it was like a little. Um, it was kind of like this one of the little mini stories that would be in a Punisher annual between two bigger stories, like a little like you know five page story or whatever. Um, it's just basically Frank Castle wakes up in his van uh, and he's, he just needs to do some laundry. Like he's just in a really bad part of town and he just has like a laundry basket with all this like Punisher stuff in it. And he goes in there and puts uh, some quarters in. And then meanwhile, like the the area that he's in is just this like gangland war zone and there's all this shit going on around him. Uh, you know, like pimps beating on prostitutes and you know gangs picking on you know young poor kids and stuff. And he's trying his best to ignore it. You know, and he goes over to the liquor store just to buy some you who or something and it's Ron Perlman is like this like you know war vet you know in a wheelchair like liquor store talking about you know he's like you know four trips to the sandbox not a scratch now I come back to this shit it's like he's in this wheelchair <laughs> and so and then and then the, obviously the Punisher just snaps and like you know decimates everybody in the end it's, and it's just it's just such a fun little little thing and, and for a while there it's like this 10 minute like short fan made short was like the only good Punisher thing uh, that existed basically um, and until uh, until season two of Daredevil yeah season two of Darede- Daredevil comes along and they work in the Punisher because it, because the Punisher had been in I think se- 70s Frank Miller Punisher run it might have been 80s um, did, did a whole run a really dark gritty run of Daredevil with the Punisher in it and um, so I guess they kind of based it on that my my only complaint with that season was that you know it starts off really strong with the Punisher it's John Bernthal who played Shane in The Walking Dead and he has a really good take on the Punisher he's a really sort of gritty kind of grunt kind of Punisher you know like a ex-military uh, they updated his backstory so that he was in uh, Afghanistan as opposed to Vietnam like the original 1970s Punisher but um but they, they, they play him like a really like laconic kind of like tough guy, uh, you know, keeps to himself kind of brutish kind of Punisher, which is totally fine. Um, but I thought I thought basically I think they dedicated about the first four episodes of, of season two Daredevil the Punisher. Uh, and it's really strong. He, he's, he, he plays him very well. And in, in a sense that where he's both kind of threatening and antagonistic, but also kind of sympathetic. Um, and and an, just an interesting character. Uh, but then they, they just sort of put put him over to the side and then go into this whole like Electra story. It's like they try to cram too much into the one season. You know, it's like, it's like they should have just made like season two about the Punisher and then season three about Electra or vice versa. Instead, they try to do these two complete season arcs at the same time. So they're, they're they have to like pause for a few episodes and do a bunch of Electra episodes and they pause and go back and, and it just, it's not very well integrated, but um, the thing that, that worked about that season is that everybody really liked the punish the presence of the Punisher in it, and uh, and the fact that John Bernthal has has a really good gritty take on the Punisher, and so fans liked him enough that uh, the whole Netflix Marvel people uh, decided to give him his own spinoff series. So um, here's what happened: um, I watched the first episode, and I absolutely fucking hated it. <laughs> like I just hated it. Like all the Marvel Netflix series. 
uh, like Daredevil, uh, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, and Defenders, they all look really good. They're all kind of filmed in the same kind of area, and they all kind of overlap with one another, and the kind of Hell's Kitchen thing, and, and Luke Cage, they, they sort of up the grain uh, factor a bit because they're trying to reference like the old black exploitation films, uh, you know, like Foxy Brown and Coffee and all that stuff. But they all they all are are really color coordinated to look sort of like comic panels. Like they use a lot of like yellow lighting and red lighting and like primary colors, and it's very uh, stylish and well filmed in terms of like the color palette and just the sort of the way that it's all put together. It kind of mimics a comic book, not in a sort of obvious shitty way like the Ang Lee's Hulk movie does, you know, or the or the director's cut of the Warriors, or whatever, where they really have things like turning into comic panels and right. you know, but but in, in just a really cool, subtle way, just the way that it's lit and structured and stuff like that kind of resembles uh, a comic book. And I always thought that was that was really interesting. And then the Punisher just looks like absolute shit. It just looks like it does not look like it's filmed by the same people. The the, the whole technical crew of it, like it's just, you know, it's almost like there's been no attention given to the color palette. Or if there is, it's just like a a dull gray, basically. Well, I think I think it was like they were going for like a like black, white and gray. They very well could have. They very well could have sucked all the color out of everything just because the Punisher essentially has his, you know, life force sucked out of him when his family gets murdered. Right. So so basically it's like. I guess you could say metaphorically, like the color has drained from his existence or whatever. But, but I, th- I think just just the way it's filmed, though, it's it's just really kind of awkward and sloppy. Like the, all the camera setups and just the sort of like the camera work and just the even just the actual way that it's filmed, like the the, the type of you know digital cameras or whatever they're using. Like it just it looks kind of like bad kind of a cheaper looking video than than the other series. I mean it's it's interesting in a sense the the Punisher series almost doesn't have anything to do with the other series because the other series are all connected and they all have Rosario Dawson turn up at one point. The only connective thread uh from the Punisher series back to to Daredevil is the one character uh Page, what's her name? Is it Karen, it's pa- Karen, Karen Page, Page um who who kind of struck up an interesting kind of bond with Frank Castle in, in season 2 Daredevil. She turns up uh, in the Punisher series, so she she's the kind of connective tissue back to other things, but it certainly doesn't have the whole overlapping back and forth of like the Defenders and Daredevil and Jessica Jones and all that, uh, which which I think is kind of cool in a way because the, the Punisher is such a, a loner character that that his series is almost it's just completely detached from all that stuff. Um, but I th- I found the first episode really corny, really sort of cheesy. I, I thought it's basically like Frank Castle has sort of mistakenly thought that he avenged, you know, his family's death and sort of killed everyone that was involved with their murder and everything like that. So he kind of basically, like, gives up being the Punisher in the beginning. He burns his his uh, famous skull-encrusted tunic or whatever. And basically you find him, I don't know, six months later or whatever, with his hair all grown out and a beard and stuff like that, working in a for a construction company. Just basically, basically all he does day and night is just hammer down walls with a sledgehammer. And it, and it, and it has this whole kind of cliched structure of the like laconic tough guy that just wants to be left alone kind of makes friends with the kind of pathetic poor kid that you know is maybe like a a couple sandwiches short of a picnic kind of kid you know and then he falls in with the real bad tough crowd and gets involved in this crime and stuff and fucks up and then they're gonna like kill him and then so basically like Frank Hassel has to become the Punisher again you know at the end of the episode to like punish these evil doers and rescue like the kid and stuff And, and, and I just thought it was so bad and I just thought, like, fuck, like, you know, I, you know, as four, four strikes or whatever, you know, I thought, man, like, I had s- such high hopes for this thing. Uh, and somebody, somebody well, told be- me. Before you get any further, though, for like, for me, um, I'm an episode and a third 
shy of finishing the series, so I'm not I'm not quite where you are in terms of completion. But right. that that first episode was for somebody like me, right? Who doesn't know Punisher? I haven't it's seen any up. of those movies. The only, I've read one comic that has Punisher in it. Like all I really know him from is the John Bernthal character from Daredevil. So for this to just be like, okay, we're setting up the ground rules of like, this is a guy who's got a past that he thinks he's ahead of. He still wants to keep to himself, but that at the end of the day, he does mm-hmm. still have this code that can lead him to brutal violence. And it sets up all of those things yeah. that are gonna yeah. that are gonna take you through the rest of the season. Should we, should we give Should we give the listeners some backstory in case anybody's like not familiar with the Punisher? Like, essentially, you know, he's this Italian guy. In the comics, he was studying to be a priest, like a Catholic priest. But uh, I think they've omitted that part in the new series. But essentially, he's this guy that has this family, has this beautiful wife and these two kids, and and uh, you know, and but he's in the Marines, and um, you know, and he basically gets called. Originally, he, he gets called off to Vietnam in the in the seventies comic, but they've updated it, so he has to go to Afghanistan and deal with all the stuff overseas in the Middle East, and and you know, obviously, a lot of you know, kind of PTSD inducing, kind of mind shattering stuff, you know, goes on, and, and then he comes back to his family. And, you know, because of clandestine goings on in the military and this and that, you know, it's like basically his family's murdered. They they have a family picnic in like Central Park and his family is completely murdered. And, he, and he's he's like shot to pieces himself and, and takes like a bullet in that brain and stuff. Like that. And he's basically sp- spends a bunch of time in the hospital and, uh, you know, and, and just comes back as this like raging vengeance machine whose who's only mission is to like, you know avenge the death punish. of his family <laughs> yeah just to to punish and uh and basically kill everyone ever but but you know there, there's sort of a complexity to him in the sense that um he's thought of by the public and everything as this horrifying kind of like vigilante terrorist kind of guy but I, but i mean he 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 does have like a moral code like a very strong moral code like he helps innocent people and people that are in trouble and and, and people that can't take care of themselves i mean he I mean, he's 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 a bad in the sense that he murders people. You know, he he uh, brutally murders people co- constantly, basically, right? But but uh, kind of like Dexter, you know, almost like you could say like these people are almost possibly deserving of it because they're you know they're criminals and pedophiles and sex traders and and drug dealers and you know basically just the dregs of humanity, you know. But if someone's ever actually in trouble or uh, can't take care of themselves or, you know, women or children or, or uh, you know, people that are unable to defend themselves or whatever. He he will often kind of become almost like a guardian or savior type figure uh, to these people. Anyway. So you you obviously pushed through. You pushed past the first episode. You said somebody. Yeah, someone, someone said to me, like, just keep watching. They said it gets better, like, as it goes along. They said just, just, just watch episode two and... Uh, you know, and then kind of get back to murder. So I, you know, I, I threw it on again a couple nights later and they were totally right. Um, episode two is, it was much better and it really kind of snaps into place. The, the, the cool thing is, you know, and, and spoiler alert to anyone who hasn't watched it yet. Um, what, one of the things that, that was always shitty about the Punisher movies is they always left out his sort of like sidekick microchip. Who's kind of like his sort of, um, tech savvy kind of, uh, partner kind of guy or whatever, you know, uh, this kind of like, kind of like guardian angel kind of watching over him and, you know, um, and so basically, like uh, that guy's never really mentioned anywhere except in the Warzone movie, and in the Warzone movie they just kill him off, <laughs> which is like ridiculous, uh, because he's such a huge part of the comics. 
Um, they just put him in the one movie and then just killed him off again. But but the the cool thing in episode two of this thing is he's kind of playing this cat and mouse game with this kind of like mysterious person who's kind of like what been watching him and stuff like that. And and at the very end of the episode, or is it the end of the first episode? At the very end of the episode, you see this kind of bearded, scraggly haired guy in this kind of sort of fortress of computer screens and stuff like like I got you now, Frank, whatever. And 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 it's obviously microchip. And this this actually does something that I don't think the comics ever did or at least none of the ones that I read, where, where it kind of details the genesis of the Punisher-Microchip relationship. They just call them Micro in the series, which is probably a wise move. But but they, uh, I don't know if they ever really explained in the comics exactly how they kind of met and got to know each other and became sort of like, you know, sort of, I don't know if friends is the right word, but sort of, you know, co- co-workers, confidants, <laughs> like, you know, um, partners in crime. And so that was kind of interesting. So, so, so the, what I felt um, about the Punisher series is that, is that it almost for me it just got better and better and better with with each you know new episode. You know, it just got. Um, I thought the the stakes were a lot higher than any other Marvel shows simply because you know the Punisher is not bound by the same kind of moralities as the kind of rest of the superheroes, the goody two shoes kind of superheroes, and also just the the kind of shit that happens in the Punisher's world, like just the level of violence and the, and the sort of the stakes are, you know, up, they're like 10 out of 10, right? Like, I mean, it's like any, anything could happen to anyone at any point, nothing's really safe. Um, and so it, it just escalates. I just find that even though it's not as well filmed as the other series, even though it's, it's, it's got sort of a, I mean, and this can work in its, to its advantage. Like it's got sort of a, a sloppier, grittier, kind of more awkward kind of style. But I mean, that, that does kind of fit the fractured nature of the character. And I just found that, I found that out of all the shows that this one kind of was the most like emotionally engaging and the most kind of disturbing and the one that kind of it's almost like a punch to the gut kind of like it's sort of like it affected like like I enjoyed watching Daredevil and Jessica Jones and all that you know I, I, I enjoyed watching that stuff but I never felt like the sense of kind of danger or the kind of unsettled kind of feelings uh, as that the Punisher kind of like generated. Uh, and, and by the end of it, I, I don't want to say uh, we're in kind of a bind here because Dylan hasn't seen like the last uh, episode. So I don't want to I don't want to say anything like uh, this going to ruin it for him. But I, I thought pretty much like like the kind of irony of, of the season is that, um you know, you have the Punisher, you have the, this really violent character who's always like, you know, on these missions and killing people and rocket launchers and grenades. He's just decimating <laughs> everybody's path. But this season is almost kind of like Frank Castle not being the Punisher not wanting to be the Punisher and he's just kind of keeping to himself and he, he winds up taking care of this woman, um, you know, and her, and her family and stuff like that. And he's, he's basically kind of laying low, just trying to like get on with his life and, and, and like, you know, Pacino and the Godfather, all these things happen that kind of pull him back into the life of being the Punisher. But I, but, but I find, so he spends most of the season really like not really killing that many people or, or doing <laughs> very many punishery things. But the thing that, that's interesting though is by, by the time you get to the end, once you hit about the last, I think about three episodes. I think it's maybe like episode like 11, 12, 13 or whatever. It, it just goes off the rails. Like he just, uh, you know, not only does he become the Punisher again, but but he's just decimating like like it ain't no thing. You know, like you, you saw the one episode, right, where there's the big kind of fight in the warehouse thing or whatever, like where it's... You mean it, in the... In the space, like I, spoiler alert, by like the in way, their, like in their bunker. Yeah, well, it's yeah, like in, you, in have, their... you have the hotel episode. I I hated that episode. Yeah, the hotel episode. Yeah, where they're like time jumping and flashbacks. I hated and... the time jumping episode. This is the thing. I like like I just said like that it gets better and better and better as it goes along, but that one episode, um, kind of fucked that up for me because 
I generally am a fan of uh, nonlinear storytelling. You know, like I love the early Adam McGowan films. You know, like The Sweeter After and stuff like that. And I and I love uh, you know I mean anything like Pulp Fiction, Memento, Irreversible, whatever. You know, I, I like the back and forth storytelling, but. I didn't think it suited... I mean, they didn't do it anywhere else in the series. Like, every single Punisher episode, uh, you know, up until that point was basically, like, a kind of A to Z, like, linear storytelling. There was, you know, flashbacks when he was in the war and stuff, but essentially they were always proceeding forward. And then you get to this really important episode because it's the sort of climax of that kind of, um, what'd you call him, the sort of lone gunman kind of terrorist PTSD military guy. It's the climax of his story. And basically, suddenly, at a really crucial moment, it's also... Spoiler alert, um, the episode where they reveal that, that his good friend, you know, has betrayed him, you know, and they've been building up to that all season, you know, like, when's he going to figure out that this guy that he trusts is kind of like a piece of shit that's screwing him over? And and, and so this episode um, is all completely out of sequence and it's back and forth and it's jumping back and forth in time. And it's all over the place. And, and to me, even though generally I like that type of storytelling, I thought at such a crucial moment in a series that had never done anything like that up to that point that it was really distracting and it kind of lessened the impact of of the sort of climactic reveal you know that that his friend was kind of um screwing him over and stuff like that but i thought the last three episodes were like real high octane and and especially the sort of finale of the final episode which i won't get into because you haven't seen it yet but it does a really interesting thing that sets up a very important character for season two uh you know so um which which has now been announced so season two, yeah, yeah, because yeah. you never really knew uh, when they finished this thing, they weren't sure if, if there was going to be a season two, but they did leave it kind of open yeah. for things. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to spend too much more time on it. I'm kind of keeping an eye on the clock. I want to keep it maybe under half an hour on this, but uh, yeah, I mean, there were there were times that the series seems to have tried to take on issues and yeah. it didn't give itself enough time to do it. Like, it seemed like the the hotel episode on top of doing yeah. this whole nonlinear thing was also trying to be a very special episode about gun control, Yeah, which, and it just was sort of shoehorned in there. Yeah. And I mean, they didn't really come to any, like they didn't, they didn't talk about it enough to have the episode really be about gun control, but they also didn't come to any kind of conclusion quickly to let you know where they stood on it. It was just kind of like, but they spent more time on it than as if they were just kind of saying, oh, you know, this yeah. is something that's in the zeitgeist. Like it was this in this awkward space where they were both dealing with it and not dealing with it. But I mean, the the violence of this show is, I mean, you mentioned being upset. Like there were times when when you're seeing Frank in Afghanistan, like that yeah. scene where he's just like running and he gets shot and like this yeah. is you know, before he punches the guy in the head, like I was, I, I was looking away and I don't normally do that. Like, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm part of that like grizzled millennial generation sure. that grew up blowing Unfazed up, by yeah, you know, blowing up aliens and video games and whatnot. And I was just like, good Lord. And I think that it's, it's putting you in this space where you're just like, yeah, violence is real and violence. Mm-hmm. I mean, I realize it's within the context of a fictional, sure. a comic book. Uh, a, a, a com- yeah. A comic book adaptation on a Netflix TV series. It, it is the but, most, sort of serious of all, of all the those kind of marvel yeah, comic it, kind of things though i mean it, it is it takes the violence very seriously and it demands that you respect it but it's also it's so if you're into it it's super entertaining like in mm-hmm. in the bunker in the third to last episode when when billy's crew invades yeah. micro's stronghold and like it's Frank is carnage. blowing off pieces of like he's shooting people with shotguns in the face yeah, and you're seeing yeah. everything like you're watching people's faces implode. Yeah. 
and it's like it's so upsetting i was i was really um kind of shocked you know in uh in daredevil uh, it's like season two of daredevil i think it's like episode four or something there's a scene where uh, the Punisher's in, like, I think they've captured him and they're, like, torturing him or something. He's, like, tied to a chair or something in, like, uh, some kind of underground catacombs or warehouse or something or whatever. And he, anyway, he gets free and he grabs, like, a shotgun or something and it's, like, that Irish gangster guy or whatever and all his crew and, and, and he just, like, decimates all these people. And, and Daredevil comes in and is kind of, like, fighting with him and Daredevil's sort of like, you know, don't kill anyone. The Punisher's like, what the fuck are you talking about? You know? But there's a scene where it's just, like, Frank Castle and, and the Irish gangster guy and, 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 and Castle just, like, beats the shit out of him and he's just, like, kind of, like, lying there up against the wall and Frank Castle just takes, like, a pump-action shotgun and puts it to his face. And I, I, I thought you know they're going to cut away you know like I, they always do in scenes like that you know you put the you know the shotgun in the person's face and then you pull the trigger and you just cuts away and you see like blood splatter against a wall and you hear a big bang or whatever but they literally he just he just like squeezes the trigger and just blows a huge hole like right into the guy's face without cutting just like literally just shoots the guy in the the face with like a pump action shotgun on this episode of Daredevil, literally just blows his face apart like against the wall, and I, and I was shocked. Like I was like, like you know, first I was like, "Holy shit, I can't believe they just did that." And then I was like, "Yeah, that's the Punisher. Like that's like the comic, you know, right. just like bang, you know, just like totally brutal." I think basically, with what you were saying with the sort of the issues, you know, in the in the kind of uh, the subtext and illusion stuff going on in the Punisher series, I think that a like it's hard to say whether or not they really wanted to like tackle these issues and say something about like the contemporary USA and gun control and things like this, or if that's kind of like the only way they could get the series made because you you essentially have this character who's just this brutal kind of urban you know kind of um, I don't want to use the word terrorist what what would you call him it's sort of vigilante a vigilante he's a he's a sort of urban vigilante and he's just constantly b- brutally murdering people w- without any remorse and and it's hard I think it'd be hard now nowadays. Um, to get a show like that made where a guy just goes around blowing people's heads off with shotguns and like launching grenades and rockets and stuff at people. And I think that one of the reasons I think why they did this, I mean, other than just the fact that fans wanted to see a Punisher show, is because I think they are using the character and the whole scenario of the character and the military background and the war in the Middle East and everything. They're using it, I think, to examine a lot of issues about, like, uh, veterans, about post-traumatic stress disorder, about gun control, about violence. Now the uh, uh, the second season of Daredevil was commended by a group. I do not remember the group. I'll be sure to include it in the uh, in the foot or in the show notes. But uh, but they said like this is one of those times that we, as this like veterans organization, feel that we can say like, I mean, obviously we're not endorsing what the dude right, is right, doing, right. but like. This is a show that is taking the time to explore what it can be like for for a soldier yeah. to come back. And that's part of what really got me engaged with mm-hmm. the Punisher is those support group scenes where they're yeah. you know they're talking about what it's like to, you know, come back to a country where you have all these mm-hmm. skills that were put to use and you did horrible things yeah. and now nothing that you learned applies and you're supposed to yeah. kind of pretend that everything is okay and the effect that that has on people and obviously it doesn't have answers because it's yeah. a huge social problem if netflix writers could come up yeah. with the answer to that big no, but social it's, problem, it. it's like the whole it's like uh, born on the fourth of july like the oliver stone film with tom cruise right yeah. it's like it's got that kind of vibe it's like i, I thought the group the group therapy kind of sessions were, were interesting too uh, you know they have these kind of um you know, almost like AA meetings for like veterans to d- to discuss, you know, like you know the difficulties they're having in their lives and PTSD and stuff like this. And um, 
I thought that was an interesting aspect of it, and they kind of they kind of do go back to that. You haven't seen it yet, but they kind of they kind of end on a note, you know, kind of it's re- it's really interesting. But um, yeah, I thought I thought uh, you know, especially with that kid, you know, the young kid who just doesn't know what to oh, do with man. himself, like when he when he gets back from the war, like he just doesn't know. You know, you, you got to understand, too, like some of these people like have just really been in the shit. I mean, they, these young kids, you know, they go overseas and and and, and basically they want, you know, they, they have to do things like just horribly violent. Th- the stuff that they see, just, you know, people stepping on landmines, people being blown in half, you know, just like gr- grenades, victims of all kinds of, st- you know, just uh, seeing, you know, their their friends and and. uh uh, you know, fellow soldiers and stuff like that, just like eviscerated. Just in the, you know, both in terms of things that um that happened to them and and their friends and and their and their peers and stuff, but also things that they're forced to do to others, things that they you know having to to take the lives of other people, people they don't know, having to you know open fire on strangers, they, like st- stuff that. You know, I mean, I think they think they can handle it. You know, they go over there. It's like, you know, they have all, they've had all this training and everything. But it, it, training is one thing. But when you're really put in a situation where you have to take like another human's life or or, or, or deal with the aftermath of that or whatever. And when you when you realize these aren't just like, you know, car, like cartoon characters in a video game or whatever. But these are actual real human beings. Uh, they have lives and families and things, too. And, the, and that you're 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 forced into this kind of antagonistic situation where it's like you or them. And, you know, a lot of these soldiers have to do things that at the time are necessary for their own survival, but then they come back to everyday life and then suddenly it's like, oh, well, you know, get a job at Starbucks and, you know, you know, just, you know, have a, you know, get a Big Mac and buy the paper and, you know, go see the the new uh, Superman movie or whatever. And it's like after having witnessed these things and, and, and done these things, I think a lot of these people just can't, you know handle you know even just regular daily things you know like just buying a cup of coffee or going for a walk whatever i mean because you know you're you're haunted by the stuff that you've seen and the, and the mm-hmm. things that you've done and stuff and it, and it eats away at you and because i mean y- there's characters in movies and tv shows stuff like that uh, where they try to address this but maybe for like one episode you know or maybe they you know it's like this offhand thing but a very central kind of integral part of the punisher series is kind of examining like what has happened to all these people after they get back from uh, you know what what they had to do you know and then you get like all these different people like Billy Russo's kind of become this like sort of gun for hire like you know starts his own kind of independent kind of you know organization uh, you know and then and then Frank Castle's just trying to kind of survive and then you get the kid with uh, you know such bad PTSD and everything that he, he's kind of almost driven to mm-hmm. become this sort of terrorist like figure and it just just the different ways that all the people kind of um deal with you know, trying to get their lives back after having been in this really horrible situation. Right. Right. Was there more about the Punisher you wanted to say? I just uh, not really. Just uh, you know, yeah, shout out to Dimitri, who was my my partner in, in crime uh, back when I was a kid and uh, discovering the Punisher. And uh, we actually met because he saw me reading a Punisher graphic novel in the library, oh, the Grade Eight Library. You know, and then so we we would just compare notes all the time. You know, we got the new War Journal. <laughs> the other like, kids are looking at you funny, but Dimitri yeah, had yeah, your back. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Absolutely. So, um, props to him. There's much and more to say about Punisher, but uh, we're actually here to talk about a movie primarily. Our our deep dive is going to be about a movie from the year 2016 from director Antonio Campos. We're going to be talking about Christine. Not the haunted car movie. 
Uh, So the way that Netflix describes this movie, it says, In a film based on true events, an awkward but ambitious TV reporter struggles to adapt when she's ordered to focus on violent and salacious stories. And Netflix describes the movie as violent and dark. Um, I guess that's accurate. (laughs) It's dark and technically violent. (laughs) Violent for the last, or for a 30 second period. 95% 95% of the way through the movie. Yeah, yeah. It's not actually a violent film. <laughs> no, I wouldn't call it a violent film. There, There is one moment of relatively shocking, distressing violence in it, but in, in an entire two-hour movie, um, <laughs> I think these days that's actually fairly judicious or whatever. Uh, so this is a movie that actually got foreshadowed again in our in our last episode where you yeah. had a bit to say about Christine. So yeah, I mean, we're going to, we're going to freeform it a bit more um, than we did last time. So I just want to ask you first and foremost, why did you want to come back and talk more about Christine? What is it about this movie um, that made you want to do a podcast about it? We're talking about Christine Chubbuck, the Floridian journalist who committed suicide live on air uh, in 1974. Um, and I, have been fascinated with this person for a really long time. Um, I think I first discovered her in Cinema Sewer, which is this really great publication that my friend Robin Bougie uh, edits. Uh, He sort of spearheads the whole thing. Um, They sort of come out almost like, I don't want to say comic book, but, but, but kind of like in comic book format, uh, it's basically a really interesting publication that examines uh, the sort of all the stuff that's kind of usually in the shadows or the hidden corners or whatever of cinema and pop culture, like uh, you know uh, uh, sleaze films, seventies seventies grindhouse films, uh, pornography, um, just sort of like video nasties, eighties uh, action films, uh, the can- canon films, group films. Like just it's really um, it's the sort of uh, the sort of forgotten annals of. Uh, uh, film, you know, st- stuff that Quentin Tarantino would love. You know, it's it's a really interesting publication. They they come out kind of in these sort of comic book format. You know, it's a lot of text, but also there's like a lot of uh, drawings and uh, and stuff. But it's really neat. And then they they've compiled. Uh, like sort of these these sort of best of compilation books and they have like six of them now they just put the sixth one out a couple months ago and it actually features an interview i did with uh porn legend uh ginger lynn allen really in-depth uh 48 minute interview i did with uh with this famous uh porn legend but um but basically uh i would highly recommend these these compilation books you can get them on amazon uh, and probably like chapters indigo and stuff like that, where they basically collect sort of like the best of a certain period of time's worth of, of these cinema sewer things. But there's a lot of, of interesting little nuggets of information about the, the sort of uh, the, the dark side of pop culture kind of stuff in there. And I think that it was in probably the first volume that I first discovered Christine Chubbuck. I was familiar with like our Bud Dwyer, the the uh, American, uh, what was he? Uh, not a senator. He was like something. He was an American politician. A that, lawmaker of some kind. Yeah, he committed suicide live on air and and this kind of circulated around like in the 80s like late 80s early 90s and the kind of those little videotape compilations and uh mixed video mixtapes that would circulate around and uh, and it was on like faces of death and all stuff but i was actually not familiar with christine chubbuck i don't think until i read this little little piece i think it was robin himself that wrote it um in uh in cinema sewer basically talking about this young beautiful uh, reporter in Florida in the 1970s, uh, you know, who committed suicide live on television. And I, and I was really fascinated by like, uh, you know, why would somebody do that? Like, who was this person? She, you know, she, she's, she's, uh, she was very intelligent. She's very beautiful. She's very, uh, you know, interesting person. I thought, you know, 
like like you so i started doing a lot of research about her and and watching like youtube videos and reading wiki and stuff and and essentially she was this this very intelligent capable woman she was born in ohio somehow wound up in florida and she was like a like a a reporter and, and sometimes news anchor on wxlt uh, in Sarasota, Florida, in the in the early '70s, and she she had her own show called Sun Coast Digest, and she tried to do like a lot of community uh, kind of outreach stuff, like stories. Uh, I guess wanted to do a lot of sort of positive community stuff, and she really uh, had a problem with the sort of if it bleeds, it leads kind of sentiment. Um, uh, of the news back then, obviously they've dealt with this in other films like Nightcrawler, recent, more recently Night Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal and stuff. But but basically, uh, the idea is that uh, you know the stories that get the ratings are like the brutal murder suicides and the kidnapped children and the you know the car accidents and stuff like that. And uh, you know and and she was trying to do stuff that was a little more. Um, you know uh, about the community positive kind of uh, I forget what she called it like positive human interest stories or something um, and basically like they you know they were they were telling her like you know we we just want the we want the shit you know we want the, the, the blood and guts and gore and stuff like that and, and, and also being a woman in, in a very sort of patriarchal uh, workplace back then I think I think she had a lot of problems with um, just being sidelined all the time for male co-stars and and uh, or co-anchors I should say and, and, and things like that I think I think she had a lot of ideas ideas and, and I think she was very conscientious about trying to do something interesting and she was just constantly being kind of like put down and demeaned and sidelined basically uh, you know because she was a woman and uh, and I think all these things just ate away at her I think she she suffered from from clinical depression and it has been suggested kind of after the fact that she may have also uh, suffered from bipolar disorder because she had a lot of mood swings she lived with her mother and it's not in the film but I think she also lived with her brother I think they all lived together in this sort of cottage that she had yeah. And um, the brother character is just omitted completely from the the film. But so basically, uh, you know, she she was a 29 year old virgin. Um, she'd never been with anyone. Uh, she I guess she she'd had a, like a a boyfriend in high school that I think died in like a like a car accident or something. And then she was dating a, a Jewish man. And her father, who I guess was anti Semitic, basically pressured her into breaking up with this guy. And so she was 29 years old at the time of her death and had never had sex. And she had. Uh, I don't know if it was ovarian cancer or an ovarian cyst or something, but they had to remove one of her ovaries in order to to prohibit the cancer. And and after and they basically told her that it would be a lot more difficult for her to conceive after this, and that if she yeah, didn't conceive they were, in they were, the next couple of years, yeah, there was a countdown clock that yeah. yeah. And I think she had always wanted to uh, to have a partner and to have a child and to be a mother and all these things. And so basically, you know, we have this woman who's who's you know uh, mentally unstable due to clinical depression and possibly also bipolar disorder having these great mood swings and, and you know, living with her mother and, and, and all the stuff. And, and then she loses the ability to kind of to have a child and she's almost 30 years old and she's still never been with anyone. And, stuff. and I, I think all, plus all the sort of patriarchal misogyny in the workplace and stuff like that. And I, and I think all of these things just kind of piled up as they do, you know, and I don't think she really had very many people to kind of reach out to or very many kind of close friends or confidants or anything and I, and I think it just sort of bubbled and simmer, simmered and boiled until she just did this really bold crazy kind of thing which was to shoot herself in the head on live television okay so you you had already heard about the story you'd read about it and this was all before the movie existed right yeah um the interesting thing about this is that they actually made two different films 
about Christine Chubbuck in 2016. It's really bizarre. Although the other film, which is called Kate Plays Christine, is not really a dramatization of the story of Christine. It, it's more like this kind of meta sort of documentary about the actor um, Caitlin Scheel preparing to play Christine Chubbick and kind of going around Florida and, and investigating her life and talking to people who knew her and things like this. I did not like that film even like a fraction as much as the Antonio Campos film, Christine. Um, ironically, I should mention um, that uh, Antonio Campos, who directed the film Christine, also directed episode eight of The Punisher, which was called Cold Steel, I thought that was really bizarre because uh, the last podcast we've been talking about both The Punisher and Antonio Campos and Christine. And so then I'm working my way through The Punisher and, and episode eight pops up uh, directed by Antonio Campos, which is very strange. Both uh, pieces dealing with, with guns and, and violence and violence in the media and all this. I had seen Antonio Campos' earlier film, uh, Simon Killer, uh, which he did in 2012. But this film, it's a much meatier uh, piece of work. It's a much more mature film. I really like this film. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say it. I'm just gonna come and say it. Um, I think this is a really well-made film, and I think it's very emotionally moving. Like I think it's jarring, and um, you know, I think it addresses things that people aren't, you know, just the whole notion of of like clinical depression and mental illness and in, you know, friends or coworkers or family. I mean, I think it's something, it's a subject that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. And it's something that I find is is very often skirted over, especially in real life, just kind of, um, you know, and, and this film really dedicates itself in its entirety to kind of zeroing in, you know, in, in a very intense way on this person mm-hmm. who's dealing with clinical depression and, and uh, these very serious issues of depression and mental right. illness and, and so forth. And, and I thought it was, I was worried when I heard they were making a film about Christine Chubbuck, I, I thought it would be very easy to make a very exploitative film about her, you know, because obviously there's this money shot that everybody's, you know, no, aware of and is kind of waiting for uh, happening. And, you know, and it's like maybe people might watch this film for the wrong reasons or, or would I mean it would be so easy to kind of go over the line and and just make this kind of sadistic uh, kind of shock fest of a film or whatever uh, surrounding her and I, and I thought that they handled her and her characterization and her life and everything leading up to the incident in a very sympathetic, empathetic, very well well drawn out way, just uh, with her relationships with all of her coworkers and her mother and I thought they painted her as a very three-dimensional person that was sympathetic that you actually sort of felt for and I mean obviously most people going into this film already know the story or they know what's happened or what's going to happen and so it's like what do you do when everybody who starts the movie basically knows how the the film's gonna end right basically I think by really focusing on on this character and and what, what her life is like and who she is and kind of spending like two hours with her I feel like you really feel something for her by the end by the time this thing's coming and and, and she's going to do it I, I feel like you don't want her to do it I mean you know that yeah. she's going to but I feel like I think I, at least for me anyway you know because I was fascinated by the whole story and I you know I thought oh, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna see this thing and I know what she's gonna do and everything. but then by the time it gets there in the film I thought don't do this you know right. like you yeah. you don't have to do this like if you know if you could only see the kind of broader perspective of your life the way the viewer does you'd see that they're are people that care about you and that you have people that are pulling for you. So, but it's just that she's so deep into her own kind of depression and, and sort of spiral 
that she almost is completely oblivious to the fact. Yeah. That, I mean, like you said, like it, it very easily could have been exploitative and there may have been people who went to this with kind of a, a pornographic fascination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I, I was reading that the actual footage of this and they reference, uh, you know, Christine says, hey, make sure you tape this one. I, you know, I want yeah, a copy of this. She wanted it. Um, I guess the the guy who owns the station, that tape still exists. And people have asked a lot, uh, both of Christine Chubbuck's family and of the station owner and his family. I don't know who's still alive and who's not, but it's constantly been a, no, we're not putting this out there. Why would you want to see that? And just resisting this like pornographic fascination with mm-hmm. seeing this you know, as you said, like you called it a money shot. Right. And I, yeah. And I'm not saying that you are being exploitative, but I mean like to somebody who is coming at it from a faces of death kind of way. Exactly. Um, that's, that's what it would be. But then again, as you said, and I'm just apparently repeating your words at this point is, you know, by the time you realize like, Oh, this is the point, mm-hmm. this is the day, this is the event. Like you're, the feelings you're having are, like helplessness and like revulsion that you're about to watch it happen. And like, you feel bad for yourself that you're about to bear witness to Mm. this. And like, you're kind of trying to detach yourself from the movie at that point, because you know where it's going. And you know, there's nothing you can do as well. Like, you know, because it is a historical event that, you know, there's not, there's nothing that's gonna, there's no like dis ex machina that's going to come in and prevent it from happening or whatever. There's an entire subculture of people that are really interested in this kind of uh, like sadistic viewing of, um, you know, like death footage and suicides and accidents and stuff like that. You know, obviously there's like faces of death films. I, there's another series called Traces of Death. And, there you know, there's all kinds of stuff on, on YouTube and things like that. And there's the like those websites like Best Gore. Rotten.com. Yeah, Rotten.com where there's a lot of murders and suicides. And, you know, there's this whole kind of subculture. And I think like there, there is something kind of inherent about the curiosity uh, I mean, I mean, it's, it's like the way people look at car accidents. You know, everyone uh, slows down and looks at a car accident on the street. You know, and like, observes the car and stuff. It's not necessarily that that they're all getting off on it or or, or, or or being sadistic about it. But I think I think you know we, you know we're all kind of confronted. I mean, it's not all the time we're confronted with our own mortality. I mean, we're sort of walking around in these very feeble, kind of fallible shells of, of bodies that we have, and, and we're very susceptible at any point to, you know, accidents or violence or disease or whatever. And I, I think, I mean, even though, I mean, a lot of time we don't really think about this stuff or we don't want to necessarily acknowledge it or think about it, but every once in a while, like, something comes along to kind of remind us of of our own mortality, you know, like 9-11 or, like, the recent shootings uh, in Las Vegas, whatever, you know, these things. And I, I think... Sometimes people do have kind of a morbid fascination with this kind of stuff. Uh, not always out of sadism, but but because, I mean, it does kind of provoke us to confront our own mortality and say, you know, well, like, you know, what what would have happened if I was in in Vegas that night when this went down, or what, or could could I have been one of the victims, or or, or Columbine, or or the Polytechnic uh, shooting in Montreal? There's these 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 incidents happen all the time where people say, whoa, you know, like. What if that was me? You know, what if that was, what if I was there or what if, and so a lot of time, like a fascinations with these kind of morbid events, uh, you know, happen over the years. Like, like I said, like the R. Bud Dwyer um, suicide footage has just been circulating around forever. First on uh, videotape and then now like all over the internet and, and YouTube and everything like that. And, and I, I think that's something that's very interesting about the film uh, is the fact that, 
I think a lot of people probably go in and say, oh, they made a film about Christine Chubbuck, that woman that shot herself on the news. You know, let's let's check this out. You know, it's some, um, you know, let's see the, the, the Christine Chubbuck film, you know, and coming at it from that point of view, like, oh, yeah, it's this, this film about this, this woman that blows her brains out on live TV or whatever. And then I think... You know, one one of the interesting things about the film is that you, you spend so much time with this woman and they do such a great job laying out kind of like all the facets of her life, like her work life, her family life, her romantic life. And, you know, and I'll, I'll get to it in a minute, but Rebecca Hall's performance is just so good. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just so immaculate um, that I think, you know, yeah, like by, by the time... Because it's like a two-hour film, and I, I don't think the suicide happens until about the last ten minutes or so. Right, yeah. so by the time you spent like you know like an hour and fifty minutes or whatever with this woman and really kind of gotten to know her, I think uh, for most people anyway, I'm sure there's some people out there that like fast forward to the end or whatever. But I, for most people, I think the the whole <laughs> yeah. sort of um, grand guignol aspect of like you know oh now she's gonna do. I think like you said, like uh, by the time you get there, you don't want it to happen, and you feel helpless and you, you want to almost like reach through yeah. the screen and grab her and be like you know it, it's going to be okay you can there's people you can talk to there's people that care about you, you just don't yeah. see this you really don't want her to go through with it and then the, the sort of I guess the sort of gut punch of the film obviously is that she does because it's, yeah. it's a historical fact you know and they have to be true to that but I yeah. find it by the time it gets there I, I find it, it is quite jarring and unsettling because not because you don't expect it to happen or know it's going to happen but because you you don't want it to happen yeah this reminds me of there's a a true crime group that actually recently left um, but it was the one that was based on the uh, the My Favorite Murder podcast. Right, right. I, you know, I've never listened to that podcast, but I've heard all about um, it. So, yeah, I mean, it's insanely popular. Their whole approach to true crime is largely about looking at uh, murder and serial killers and serial killer culture as a way of overcoming yeah. fear and empowering women a lot of the time. Right. Like teaching women to quote fuck politeness and just like, you know, take care of yourself. Like you don't have to be nice to a guy just because he asks for help in a dark right. parking lot. Yeah. Help you know? me move this sofa. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh you know, they're they're telling each other to stay sexy and don't get murdered. Yeah. Um like that's their catchphrase. <laughs> stay sexy and don't get murdered. Stay sexy, don't get murdered. Phrase? Yeah. Yeah, it's their sign-off at the end of every episode. Um, What's our catchphrase? It's, uh, you ain't streamed to nothing yet. Right. But, uh, but so there's this Facebook group that was originally started to just kind of, like, have people share, like, hey, did you hear about this crazy murder? Did you hear about this other crazy murder? And there's kind of this civil war that started now where some people are like, I want to celebrate the empowering parts of this mm-hmm. culture, and then the other half, I mean, I don't know what the divides are, but then there's this other part of the group that's just, like, like, they've got very strong like boners for serial right, killers right, right. and so they're kind of like fighting in in and amongst a, a lot themselves of women about... i know and and have met over the years have been like really into serial killers and, and not just in an academic way like they've been really like in fascinated a or aroused way, yeah. yeah aroused by them you know and have had all these books about you know like ted bundy and and you know and like this. i'm really glad that you said what you said about this movie really serving the purpose of humanizing christine chubbick yeah and not just making it about the suicide. Because a worry that I had coming out of this movie, my immediate gut reaction was just like, this was amazing because I felt something really strongly. Like I was... So you responded to this film. You you felt something. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, I mean, I think it's... I'm not trying to do this in the way that a lot of... uh, a lot of guys will be like, this was so effective that I cried, but like I was ugly crying at the end of this movie. Like I just, I, I couldn't, I haven't had that 
visceral of a reaction to an event in a movie that I can remember like ever. Like it hit me so hard that I was just like, why is this happening? Why? And just knowing that it's real, like why did this happen? And so you being a few days removed from that, what I was worried about was I was like, is this just like tragedy and misery porn? Like, is that why I went through this just to like feel sad? So then to have you kind of be like, no, it was about like taking this, this fragment of an idea of what people like, whisper about as this like this like nasty like pornographic thing and making it about the person or at least some facsimile of the person behind it yeah but even still like the movie it's so tragic that i'm not even entirely letting it off the hook because like the end of the movie is not her killing herself the end of the movie is her friend sitting there eating ice cream trying to feel better but it's also the news broadcast where she's listening to the story about christine and christine was trying to get her voice in the news and have a voice in the news. Right. And the last thing that you hear is a, somebody on a different news channel, stop talking about Christine Chubbuck and then move on to something else. And it's just saying, okay, she's done. And now she's never on the news again. We've moved on. It's not immediately like just disposable. Like, yeah, it was like this crazy thing happened. And in related news, like, you know, the price of such and such. Yeah. She went from having this entire career to becoming a salacious headline and then it's done, which is where we're at now. Like she's Christine Chubbuck until this movie. Yeah. Is just like yeah, she's the woman who blew her brains out on live TV. Um, It's interesting too that even her in her own sort of news story obituary, it's still demeaning because they say a woman journalist from Florida or whatever committed suicide on live TV. Like it's still even in death, you know they they can't just sort of look at her as as this person, this sort of intelligent, capable reporter. Like she's still like a woman journalist shot herself on live TV tonight, and you'll notice like just like all throughout the film too, like you know like their boss, uh, I guess his name's Michael. I'm not sure if they use the, the the real person names in the film or if they made them up, but it's the the Tracy Letts character is just kind of like ladies in my office. I got to talk to you for a minute, and people are always kind of like you know referring to her in this kind of almost like demeaning way i you know love the line where he calls feminism just women talking over men yeah and i was like essentially that's what the whole like, movement's about yeah he says you know i i think the actual yeah, i think he says like you know what your problem is christine you're a feminist like and that, yeah. like that's the problem you're a feminist you know? yeah and it's just almost like if if that's the kind of stuff she's got to deal with you know on a daily basis like <laughs> it's no wonder she did yeah. something insane right like i i was actually surprised um, at my own reaction to it when I watched it today because I, I've seen the film at least two other times, maybe three times. I saw it at TIFF uh, when it was, I saw the premiere at TIFF like in 2016 um, and uh, and then I've watched it again at least once, maybe twice since then. Um, and so I thought, you know, like I've seen this film several times already. I know what's going to happen. I'm, I'm watching it today specifically because we're doing this podcast just specifically to have it fresh in my head and to make notes and stuff. So I thought it was very clinical you know, I'm not I'm not going to get like sucked into it, you know, like, you know, and then and then at the end, you know, you know, in the last 10 minutes or whatever, I'm weeping like a school child as well. I was actually surprised by how much it affected me, given that I'd already seen it several times, knew what was going to happen and was just watching it specifically to make notes and right. so forth. Um, and I was like undone again at the end by the thing. I think I think we should really say something about uh, Rebecca Hall. Um, her performance, and I went on about this, uh, you know, incessantly in the last podcast, but her performance, you know, I mean, first of all, it's tremendous. Second of all, it just blew me away. Like, I found it so disarming. I'd seen Rebecca Hall in several other films before. She's this very beautiful, uh, kind of demure, like, uh, I think she's British, 
British actor. Um, and she's she's in uh, Vicky Cristina Barcelona, the Woody Allen film. She's the other woman, not Scarlett Johansson, uh, that winds up involved with Javier Bardem. And she's also kind of like the the female lead in Ben Affleck's film, The Town. She's kind of like the love interest or whatever of his character. And she's always been very feminine and very pretty and very kind of soft-spoken and very lovely, you know, very very demure. And I, I don't know what the right word would be. Very ladylike, you know, in these other films that I've seen her in. And in this film, she does like a complete transformation. It's not like a prosthetics transformation like Gary Oldman, you know, playing uh, Winston Churchill or whatever. But she, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, she she's more tanned and she and she has darker hair and everything like that, you know, and, and stuff like that. But it's like um, she just does something with her whole gait. Like she she appears very awkward and very manly. She's kind of like a tomboyish kind of person. And she's very just the way she walks. She's kind of stooped. She's always kind of hunched over. She's very tall and lanky. And she kind of dresses in this sort of more manly way. And, and she drops her voice about an octave. Like she, she usually speaks in a higher pitch voice. But she, she drops it down into this sort of more manly kind of uh, tone. And she kind of beefs up the kind of nasal kind of accent a little bit and she does a flawless american accent too there's no point in this film where you say to yourself oh she's she's british or you know um she may possibly be australian but i'm, I'm pretty sure she's british but yeah, even when she's uh when she's yelling at her boss and yeah because i find that's usually where you lose it usually it comes out like you know like christian bale in american psycho you know it's like he's he's pretty good through the entire film and then when he's freaking out at the end on the phone and stuff you can hear the welsh accent kind of bleeding through and usually usually yeah when people are screaming and freaking out and stuff but she has some pretty some pretty intense freakouts in this movie like when she's screaming at her mother and stuff and, and there, there's you would never guess that she was not american this actor like you would never watch the film and and, and not feel that she was like an American playing this role. But yeah, just just transform yourself. And I don't want to say that she's not beautiful as Christine Chubby, but 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 she's the whole way she carries herself is very manly, very awkward, very tomboyish, very gruff, you know, and she's not very ladylike in her sort of poise and posture and 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 that's and they said that that was like what she was like in real life. They said, you know, like she she almost I mean, she was really depressed about the fact that she she could never land a boyfriend or be in a relationship or whatever, but they said that people when they would approach her or kind of make passes at her or flirt with her or whatever that she was very awkward and dismissive and confrontational and just kind of very like um there's that line in the film where michael c hall's character says you know you're 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 not really the most approachable person or whatever you know? yeah and like, she yeah. says i'm very approachable you just don't know how to approach yeah me. it's like she it's like in her own mind i don't think she realizes how kind of socially awkward she is and how alienating she can be of people who are trying to reach out to her i think she felt very alone and very uh, sheltered and on her own and kind of and, and, and that everyone else was kind of in this clique that she wasn't a part of but i think she didn't really get like in the film you can see it all through the film people are trying to reach out to her michael c hall obviously probably most of all reaches out to her he's obviously cares about her and is very concerned about her and that other guy the weatherman or whatever you know he asks her out on a date or whatever at one point she kind of just blows him off almost as if she doesn't even realize that you know and and just you know everyone that's that's kind of tries to reach out to her it's almost like she doesn't even get that that they are you know it's, it's very it's very heartbreaking one thing that's worth mentioning though is that the way Christine Chubbuck is portrayed in the film is very sympathetic. She's like this really sort of sweet girl that, that, that you know, is sort of longs for romance. You know, you can see that in the scene where she notices that couple on their anniversary in the restaurant. She kind of goes over and makes a spectacle of herself, you know, trying to talk to them about, you know, don't lose sight of what you have and all stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and she's very sympathetic and you see her struggling with mental illness and, and her relationship with her mother and the coworkers. And, everything. and you, you feel so bad for her and that she's driven to do this thing. But we don't really know 
that the Christine Chubbuck in real life was like that. You know, I mean, we don't I mean, that's that's sort of the way they've chosen to portray her in this film. But there's not really that much that's known about her. and There's not really that much footage of her. And, you know, it's interesting to mention, too, that she specifically shot herself. She got herself put on live on air as an anchor. You know, she did her, her show. What was her show called? Um, Suncoast Digest. She did her show, kind of community interest show, but I don't think she really was a main anchor that often doing like the sort of feature pieces because she kind of has to ask the station manager for permission to go on and yeah, do I, this kind I, of feature. I got the, you know. I mean, in the, the minimal amount of reading on it that I could, yeah. it wasn't uncommon for her to be right. at the desk no she'd be there but she specifically asked to have this kind of like i think sort of like prime time slot to do this story at like you know whatever like eight o'clock or whatever and um and she made sure that they were taping it and stuff right and so she'd acquired this gun and she she purposely shot herself like behind her right ear like she put the gun like she knew she was being filmed and the camera was looking at her face right so she she put the gun behind her right ear and shot like the bullet like through like it's almost like an act of sadism where it's almost like she wanted to really shock and disturb people yeah um she knew she was being filmed from the front so she she purposely shot herself from behind so the blowback would sort of come out the front and um i feel like that's quite a sadistic act especially knowing that there could be children watching the news families and you know, elderly people and stuff that were going to witness this really jarring horrifying thing i think in a sense there was an irony to it. I think it was kind of like her sort of fuck you to the um, both the station manager and the culture of the sense that, you know, she was uh, at least the her in the film is trying to do these kind of, um, uh, you know, po- positive community stories, th- things about real people, um, you know, and, and that she was constantly under this pressure like this. If it bleeds, it leads pressure to sort of deliver car accidents and houses burning down and people being injured and all this kind of stuff. And I, and she, she really, uh, you know, at least the film version of her was really against that whole mentality that news should be just about, um, you know, like all the negative stuff, you know, all the in- injuries and murder stuff. I think she really thought that the news was a powerful medium that could be used for, very positive things and communal things, you know, and and so I think the notion that her her uh, station manager was constantly saying, you know, like br- bring me, you know, the the blood and guts, bring me the gore, you know, stuff. I think I think almost like her doing this was like a final kind of fuck you, like you you want something really gory and bloody, you want a story, I'll give you a story, and she shoots herself on television, and and she even prepared that statement. Where before she did it, she said something like, "In in keeping with um, WXLT's uh, policy of uh, blood and guts journalism, if it bleeds, it leads journalism." And and in living color, you're now going to witness a television first and attempted suicide, whatever. And that that's basically, you know, a paraphrasing of what she said before she did it, which is kind of like her saying, you know, okay, if you if you, if you guys if that's what you want, you know, if you don't want you know, these, these positive community stories I've been trying to cultivate. If you, if all you want is just accidents and murder and bloodshed and misery and stuff like that, here you go. Yeah. Fuck you. Yeah. I mean, like there's no question that there's some degree of, you know, premeditation and, yeah. and whatnot involved and, and having that be. Well, cause she typed out her own, um, like not only did she, did she, did she write like what she was going to say before she did it, but she, she typed out, what the anchor was supposed to read after like you know like a 29 year old journalist christine chubbick shot herself live on right. television today she's now in critical condition at such and such hospital yeah like she like the whole thing was 
was plotted. Yeah, in and, advance. and the fact that she calls it an attempted suicide, and that she makes sure to report that she's in critical condition. Like, there's a whole lot going on there. It's kind of eerie and, because that is what actually happened, though. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, she reports that it's a suicide attempt, and that she's been rushed to the whatever the hospital was, and that she's in critical condition. So, but like, really, what happened was. Uh, it, it, I don't think she died for about 14 hours or something, and she really was rushed to that very hospital, and she was listed in critical condition. Yeah. So her, her report was totally accurate. Yeah. And I mean, I think that the the movie gives kind of a more satisfying narrative for why she did what she did. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to the limited amount of knowledge that we and anybody really had about the real Christ, Christine Chebek. In reading about it, though, the thing that really confused and upset me was her mom right. who and i mean it's it's so easy to blur the lines now at this point like having read the you know read some reports about it after having seen the movie like i want to make sure i'm not right. putting one into the other but having the mom say like oh no the reason she did this was because she wasn't satisfied with her personal life yeah and just like that's the only reason that she had so then for me i'm like well is that because her mom didn't know what else was going on or am I projecting like movie Christine's feelings onto the yeah. real person, which does kind of do a disservice to her. It's it's really hard to do. It's really hard to tell because there's not really that much known about the real Christine Chubbuck. I mean, obviously maybe to her friends and family and coworkers and stuff, but I mean, for the public, you know, it's basically just like this um, journalist in Florida in 1974 did this really strange and intense thing. Yeah. Then you have a bit of footage of her and you have some pictures of her and things like that, but you don't really know. I, I even wondered before this film came out, I even wondered um, because there is kind of a harshness about her when you when you watch her uh, like the footage of her doing interviews and stuff like that. There is this kind of almost like a caustic kind of harshness to her. And um, in the in the Kate plays Christine film, she talks to a uh, Kate Shield talks to um, I think it was one of her co-anchors or something, and they said that you know Christine actually wasn't a very good interviewer. She was very blunt, and she would just kind of like ask questions, but she wouldn't follow up or have a back and forth. She just kind of hammer on you know and kind of and i i wondered you know looking at footage of her and reading about what she did and just the, the fact that she, she that she did put the gun sort of behind her head and shoot like the bullet like through her head toward the camera stuff i wondered if she had a little bit of that you know the kind of uh like we were talking before with the kind of sadistic kind of rubbernecking uh the, you know the people that are kind of um get preoccupied with uh serial killers and murders and suicides and and and, and you know kind of graphic imagery and sadism so like i wondered if maybe that was something that she uh maybe was battling too i i know sometimes the symptom of obsessive compulsive disorder can be to be fixated on uh you know grotesqueries or or sadistic scenarios and things like that you know i mean you hear you hear stories about michael jackson had uh, you know uh, allegedly shown children uh footage of animals being killed or tortured or something like that i i don't know if that's true or not but but i i i wondered before seeing the film if perhaps she did have uh, like a very dark side and that uh, you know because anybody who kind of plans to do this to commit suicide live on air, knowing that there's people watching, that there's families watching, elderly people, children, and stuff, and and does it in such a a sort of pre-planned kind of way of of just placing the gun sort of behind her head and stuff like that, like um like toward the camera and so forth. I I wondered if there was kind of an element of sadism, uh, you know, kind of in her doing this, like I'm gonna really fuck these people up kind of yeah. element. But in the fi- but then in the film version of Christine, um. Like I said, you you get a very 
sweet, sympathetic kind of version. You get you get a, a version of Christine, and and it could be true. It could be the real version, or maybe it's just a, a fictionalized version. But you you know you get this woman who's who who seems like a very nice, earnest, considerate, empathetic person who's trying really hard to struggle you know as a woman in a very patriarchal male dominated workplace and deal you know with with living with her mother at at almost age 30 and and being a virgin and 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 suffering from depression and all the frustrations i mean you get the film kind of paints this picture of her as being a very sympathetic decent person that just gets caught up and bogged down in her own kind of depression and neuroses and stuff and just can't like claw her way out of it and and winds up succumbing to you know to her own kind of um like self doubts and and depression and stuff like that and paints a very sympathetic very tragic picture of her but there's you know we can't be sure necessarily that 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 was the Christine Chubbuck of real life yeah and I think I mean without without more information in a time machine like we're and you know a degree in psychology like yeah. us pathologizing yeah, exactly. the real Christine Chubbuck just there's no way to know she could be even more sympathetic in real life than she was in the film there's no way there's no way yeah. to know um what what we do have is this movie and actually uh, we ended up having to to postpone this recording uh by about a week a reason that I'm very glad for that is because I came across a thread on Twitter it's probably the only time recently I've been able to say, like, I'm happy that I was on Twitter. Right, right. But there was this thread where somebody wanted to post a reaction to S-Town. I, I do not recall at the moment uh, what's, uh, who it was, but um, did you listen to S-Town? No, it was, no, uh, I'm not familiar with S-Town. It was uh, a po- very popular podcast, I believe from NPR, um, that started off like it was going to be a true crime podcast okay. about solving this mysterious murder that happened but then you end up actually following the story of the guy who called to report the murder in the first place okay um and spoiler alert for s-town but ultimately ends up killing himself is this this a true thing or a fictional thing yes yes it's it's absolutely true okay okay interesting um and what the person on twitter pointed out is that before you start like at, you know as you see like top 10 lists of the greatest podcasts of 2017 before you jump on the bandwagon of calling s town one of the best things ever right just do remember how they treated suicide because they just kind of snuck out of nowhere with it they didn't prep you for it yeah. and the the writer of the tweets and i do apologize for not remembering it but uh, uh i'll i'll find them and i'll embed them in the uh in the show notes um, but they point out that the way they handled suicide was quite irresponsible mm-hmm. in that if you just kind of like sneak suicide into narratives sure. and don't deal with it by uh, prepping people for it and you don't deal with it by providing resources mm-hmm. like at the end of the episode, like, hey, just so you know, if mm-hmm. you are having suicidal thoughts, here are some resources that you can you can look out to that if you tell a story where suicide seems like the natural solution to somebody's problems right. and like the inevitable solution to somebody's problems, then that can be triggering to people to have suicidal ideation and to, you know, to act on those thoughts. So um, I'm absolutely going to make sure either here or at the end of the episode right. to include some resources and some phone numbers yeah. and some places that you can contact um, just you know, because it, anybody who is listening, I am confident that the world is better yeah. with you in it. But and I, of- I, I don't know. I don't know if Christine as a movie does that. Like, I don't know if I mean, 
if I don't know how responsible it is to just kind of like build a story around a true event. Yeah. I don't I don't think that it's that it's necessarily irresponsible, but it it doesn't it's not sort of a message film where there's a big sort of grandiose kind of didactic message at the end. I mean, it it sort of paints a portrait of this woman's life and what she was dealing with and stuff and just kind of leaves it up to you in a sense to kind of sort through but the kind of aftermath. I feel like it handles it in a lot more of a mature way than the Kate Plays Christine film does because the the Kate Plays Christine film, Kate Scheel, the actor, basically spends the whole film kind of both talking to people that knew her and going to places where she lived and stuff and researching her in that sense and also getting ready, ready for the physical preparation, like getting like spray tan and like wigs fitted and stuff like that. And, 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 it, and it kind of... And she does these random scenes, like just like sprinkled through the film. And then in the end, there's this whole kind of weird moment where she's got the gun and she's like going to do it and stuff. And then she starts saying, I, I don't think I can do this. And at first you think it's it's actually Kate Shield saying, look, I, I don't think after all the preparation, everything I've done researching this woman, I can go through with it. But then it becomes very stagey. Like she starts saying this whole thing, like she gives this big monologue and, it, you know, and, and maybe it was her, but it really seemed scripted to me where she starts talking about, she starts casting judgment on the viewers saying, you know, you're all a bunch of fucking sadists and stuff. And, and I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting. Like, cause I thought they were going to have her not do it at the end. Cause I thought that was interesting to kind of build up the whole film to the scene where she's going to blow her brains out. And, and everybody, obviously all the, the kind of rubberneckers we're talking about, the kind of sadistic rubberneckers, you know, are waiting for this moment where, you know, they get to see her blow her brains out. And I thought it's going to be neat because they're not going to have her do it. Like she's going to put the gun down at the end and say, I, I can't do this, you know? And I thought that would be an interesting way to end it by saying you're, you're not going to get the thing that you, if, if you're the, if you're the kind of person who's been waiting the whole film to see this thing happen, fuck you because it's, it, the whole film's been about her and her life and stuff and figuring out who she is or who she was I should say um, you know and it's not about this money shot but then they go through with it at the end she's like she's like you know you're all a bunch of fucking sadists and then she's like oh fuck it you know and she she puts a gun behind her ear and blows her brains at anyway at the end and and I thought it was just kind of like wait what like I I felt that that film and no offense to the filmmakers or anything but I, I felt that the way it was handled in that film was a lot less mature and was more kind of exploitative than the way it was handled in Christine. I thought it was handled in a very matter-of-fact way in Christine. I think there's still, in 2017, a huge stigma about mental illness. Uh, You know, obviously depression is one of the most common mental illnesses, and I'm not just talking about, like, melancholy or whatever, but, you know, but clinical depression is a very serious thing that can just, uh, for someone experiencing it, make it feel like, you know, like, like all the color is just drained out of the world. I mean, I... I've had a lot of close friends and loved ones that that have dealt with, you know, v- various mental illnesses, but but specifically depression and clinical depression. And I I have also myself gone through periods uh, where I've dealt with it too. And I and I find that people can be very, not everyone, but m- many people can be very dismissive of it. Um, and e- even to this day, I mean, it's something mental illness is something that makes people very uncomfortable. It's something a lot of people kind of just want to pretend doesn't exist, even though uh, like a, a vast percentage of human beings deal with it, whether it's depression or OCD or bipolar disorder. You know, it's v- something that's extremely common. Uh, so many people these days are on some form of medication or antidepressant or antipsychotic or anti-anxiety drug or something. I mean, it's like the psychiatrists are dishing them out like candy these days, right? And I find that there's still such a huge kind of dismissiveness and intolerance to this. I find that 
with with uh, stuff that people that I've I've been close with have dealt with and also myself people have a tendency to say you know snap out of it or or, or get over yourself or they kind of tend to blame it on you like say you're doing this to yourself you know you could choose to be happier you know just right. just fucking snap out of it you know I'm going to slap you across the face right. like and I think that they, they don't really understand like you you wouldn't just get over your flu yeah, yeah. if someone if someone <laughs> was born with like a heart murmur or if they had like a like a brain aneurysm or a, or a uh, if they if they were uh, a para or quadriplegic or they are, or had a, a like a, a severe deformity or they were blind or something, you wouldn't yell at someone who was born blind. You wouldn't say "fucking snap out of it, man." You know, just fucking see. You can see if you want to. You know, just like open your eyes. You know what I mean? Like you wouldn't you wouldn't yell at a guy in a wheelchair. You know, get up. You know, you're putting yourself in that chair. You know, just get up and walk if you want to walk. You know, but there, there's a, there's a tendency to to people that that have mental illness, especially depression. The people will just say, you know, like, like fucking snap out of it, man. You know, come on, you know, you're get over yourself. You know, you're someone told me that recently. A woman I know said, you know, basically said she said all the most miserable people I know also happen to be the most self-indulgent, you know. And, uh, you know, I find that a lot of people I just don't think comprehend how all consuming and debilitating something like clinical depression can be or or people living with bipolar disorder which Christine Chubbuck was kind of almost like po- posthumously diagnosed with you know after the right fact. yeah and I mean the the movie very clearly tries to pay respect to the mental health profession mm-hmm. and possibly the limitations of it at the time especially I mean, back then yeah. yeah we're talking about in 2017 how it's difficult for somebody with clinical depression to have their mental health issues taken yeah. seriously. And this is I'm trying to make sure that I'm using the, the right words to talk about this. So in 1974, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Peg, uh, Christine's mom, the best word that she yeah. has to describe it is one of Christine's moods. Yeah, right. The one word, of her moods. Right. The word depression doesn't get used, but I don't know how how widespread that was. And we do see Christine in, uh, in a therapy setting right. quite late in the movie. Um, but I don't, I don't, believe that bipolar disorder was no I don't was a diagnosis a that was possible in 1974 i don't think bipolar disorder like quote unquote existed back then i mean they, they talked about a thing called manic depression no, we you do. know there's that Jimi hendrix song manic depression is a frustrating mess you know they, they, they talk about manic depression which i think ca- kind of evolved into bipolar disorder i'm not sure if that yeah, just term just existed to be back clear then. we're talking about the the diagnoses and the understandings of the mental health. We're not saying that bipolar disorder didn't exist. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I just want to like I'm feeling I'm feeling very like wanting to make sure that yeah. in discussing these things, considering how sensitive they are, that we're we're yeah. trying to and and to people use the right people obviously with suicidal ideation or or maybe interested in or suffering from uh, depression or bipolar disorder might actually you know be interested in listening to this podcast they might they might actually choose to listen to the specific one because of this so it's very important yeah. you know to, to be clear about what we're saying yeah um you know it's not the the condition uh, but but the 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 terminology right uh that we're saying i don't think existed yeah. back then and um there are there are i don't know if this was written in the script this way or if this is the way that rebecca hall chose to perform the lines but i'm mm-hmm. thinking of the one scene uh when uh, it's when Peg is trying to break the good news, I believe, about having a boyfriend. Right. And how Peg is very excited. And Christine is reacting to it. seems like she's reacting to a change in her life. Yeah, in a and, very standoffish sort of way. And in a very standoffish way. And then when she sees that she's starting to get a bit of sympathy from mm. her... Or no, when it's not working, when like they're continuing to butt heads, 
Christine kind of changes tactics. And I don't know whether it's supposed to be on a on a conscious level or right. if this is just part of how right. how her uh, her mental illness manifests itself. But she's like, well, this is not working. So then all of a sudden she's like, well, I wanted to talk to you about something. I, I kind of took on a mocking tone right. there. But I wanted to talk to you about George about something. And all of a sudden when I needed yeah. it to be about me, you're making it about you. And they're like, yeah. nothing fucking happened with George that day. It was just there's this yeah. manipulation going on that I mean we've we've seen Christine be quite analytical and yeah. and very very methodical in how she looks at her own behavior but this is different this is yeah. a time when she, her behavior seems like strange and unwell and yeah. And uh, it's hard to yeah the scene with the mother is really intense especially the the one where she I think it's the same scene you're talking about where at a certain point she just snaps and starts just like freaking out screaming at her mother and then and then it's sort of like I'm sorry you know but I think I'm not sure if if it was intentionally designed to to seem like a manipulation or not because obviously you know a symptom of bipolar disorder is that you flip back and forth from really very manic states to very depressed states you can go from being very angry and aggressive to very sad and and you know sort of self uh, self-conscious self-deprecating so we might have just seen like a rapid mood swing there where she went from being very aggressive and kind of um accusatory to suddenly very um mm-hmm. oh my god I'm sorry I, I shouldn't have said that and something like that and it did I did read something too about how even though she was an almost 30 year old woman she was she was uh, 29 when she died almost 30 I did read that she painted her bedroom and her canopy bed uh, as uh, she would have as a teenager like as a young girl you know like sort of uh, I, I don't know what that means but you know maybe she like painted it like pink and had stuffed animals and things yeah. like, like she, I guess she had a very uh, like like uh, her be- even though she was an adult woman and she she either owned or was renting or whatever this 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 cottage kind of house that they, that they lived in her bedroom was very much uh, yeah. designed in the style of a of a young yeah, girl. Yeah, I, I was pretty sure that I'd seen that that was something to do with a project that she was doing about kind Maybe. of like youth culture that she was trying to get in touch with it and oh, try to understand very, it. Perhaps, but there was there's something kind of interesting about the fact that she kind of flips from being this very aggressive, accusatory kind of adult like, you know, like, you know, yelling at her mother to 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 almost this she flips kind of very much into the daughter role of like, so I'm, like, like I'm sorry, you, mom. I need you to I, hold I, me. Yeah, I need, yeah, I need you. Like, I'm really sorry. I, you know, I, I need help. Like, I, you know, I don't know what's going on kind of thing. Yeah, their their relationship was really interesting. I mean, the fact that she, and like, you see her mm. do this, this bouncing thing. And I don't, again, I don't want to be diagnosing. It's not responsible for me to yeah. do so. But, you know, she goes from when she needs her mother to be yeah. in a protective sort of role where she's like I feel like I need comfort then she calls her mom mom yeah and then yeah. when she wants to be treated like an adult she calls her peg yeah it's it's really interesting that kind and, of back and forth yeah and her her mother is clearly exhausted yeah with the uh well, she's probably been dealing with this for a long time. Yeah. Um I I read about an incident. I don't think they really mentioned. They make reference once in the film to like something like what happened back in Ohio back in or something. Bo- back in or Boston. Back in Boston. Yeah. Basically, Christine Chubbick um, uh, apparently attempted suicide several years earlier just with drugs. Like she tried to OD on drugs yeah. or allegedly tried to OD on drugs. Or something. So there was an incident. I don't know what she did. Maybe she took a bunch of sleeping pills or whatever. But obviously these mood swings and, the, and this kind of suicidal ideation and, and, and cries for help and stuff like that have been going on for a long time. And you, you kind of get the idea that the mother character has probably been dealing with this for quite a while. It's interesting because the first time I saw the film, the first couple times actually I saw the film, um, 
I didn't realize that Christine Chubbett kind of owned that house or was at least the, the main person running the house or whatever. I just assumed that it was kind of like the mother's house and Christine was still kind of like living at home. So when she's kind of yelling at the mother for smoking pot on the on the balcony or veranda or whatever, and um, she's kind of being very, you know, like bitching at her for not paying the rent and stuff, you know, I, I thought, you know, this is kind of weird because it's almost like I thought she was kind of like had never moved out kind of thing and was still living with her mother. And, and but yet was like kind of barking all these demands and stuff. But then I just read like yesterday or whatever that it was actually Christine that I, I don't know if she owned the house or if she was if it was just being rented her name or whatever. But the mother and brother had kind of come to live with her. So they had kind of come into her environments, which makes it make yeah. a lot more sense the way she's kind of like, I, you know, I don't want you smoking pot here. and right. You haven't paid the rent. And because because originally I thought she, she was just being incredibly demanding for someone who's kind of still right. <laughs> living at home kind of thing. But now, now I realize it's actually the the mother and brother who's yeah, not it's in the, the other way that, around. Yeah. That came and to her place. Yeah. But I mean, like the fact that for much of the movie, because I mean, I, I. I don't know what the the signposts were to yeah. to have me clue into that, but that was the idea that I had from the beginning was that it was Christine's house and Peg was living there, yeah. and so I had the idea that like Peg was just kind of like a flunky yeah. mom who like you know kept like failing her way through jobs and yeah. things like that and kept ending up in trouble. But then Peg lets us know later that like no, she's here to to keep an eye on Christine to yeah. make sure that you know if anything starts to go wrong, then there's somebody there looking out for her. Um, yeah. And Peg even, like, there's, I think it's the second scene where they're having a, a, you know, a fight in Christine's bedroom where Peg tries to get Christine to, like, stand back Mm -hmm. and be like, like, please notice the same pattern that I'm seeing. Like, this is happening again. We know where this leads. I want you to please see this because Peg is feeling absolutely helpless. And I did, uh, I found that thread that I was talking about on Twitter. So I'll I'll post the whole thing in in the show notes, but it's by Rebecca Ruiz. Um, and she says, as somebody who covers suicide frequently and who has uh, learned from my own past mistakes and covering it appropriately, I found S-Town's treatment of suicide deeply troubling. So the things that are important for what we're talking about are chief among the best practices is not to portray suicide as inevitable, uh, which is something that she says that S-Town does without holding itself accountable. Uh, and then another interesting point in terms of just because we were talking about language is that uh, a suicide prevention expert could have explained to the S-Town audience why people die by suicide. And yes, S-Town should have said die by according to best practices, but it insists on saying the phrase committed. So as a best practice when talking about suicide, as a language thing that I just learned, one should say dying by suicide as opposed to committing suicide. Dying by suicide. Because it is something that happens to you. Um, I forget where I was going. Right, but... uh, Kind of stepping, I th- oh right. Well, back well and the thing that I think the thing with the mother that was interesting is that it, you know it kind of kind of does one of those. I think we talked about it maybe in the San Junipero podcast, the kind of Fight Club, uh, Marla like Helena Bonham Carter shift, where like the first time you see the film, you know she seems kind of like this crazy nagging harpy, you know. But then once you understand that the main character is is severely mentally ill and has these multiple personality stuff the second time you watch the film suddenly she becomes this very sympathetic character that that's that's obviously being very patient with this with this person and 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 really trying her best and it just kind of recontextualizes the whole thing and in a very minor minor way it kind of does it in this film too because you know when you first kind of meet the mother and and see the mother character you know she's kind of uh seems almost kind of like an aged hippie like she's kind of smoking weed on the veranda and christine's kind of mad about that she's kind of dating this new guy and 
you get the feeling that maybe you know maybe she you know she's dating different people all the time and maybe bringing different people home and it kind of annoys Christine or whatever and she just the way she dresses and everything like she kind of seems like sort of aimless or rudderless in a way but then there's that moment where she says to Christine and, and forgive me I can't remember like the actual quotes at verbatim but 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 she basically is like you know Christine's kind of being very demanding of her and she's just like Christine like I'm just a person, you know, you got to stop being so hard on me, you know, like, yeah, I'm your mother, but we're both adults now, you know, you're like this 30 year old woman, like, I'm just a human being, like, you can't expect this much of me or demand this much of me, like, you know, you got to treat me with a certain degree of respect, because we're both just people, I'm just, I can't fix all your problems, I can't fix everything for you, you know, we're both adults, you know, I'm just a human being, I have faults and, and, you know, and shortcomings and everything, like everyone else, you gotta, you gotta kind of cut me a break, right? You gotta cut me some slack. And I felt like that really humanizes her because, you know, when you kind of initially see her, you think like, is she just this kind of, uh, I don't know what the word would be like, flibberted gibbet or, or, you know, kind (laughs) of, you know, I don't don't know what the word would be, but you know, she's smoking weed and bringing guys home and so, you know, kind of dressing like, kind of like this kind of aged hippie. And, but, uh, but when she says that, you know, you kind of get the sense that, wait a minute, like she's obviously, you know, done her best as a mother and Christine's probably been a, a difficult child, you know, to, to kind of deal with, you know, on, a, on account of the fact that she hasn't really been, she hasn't really found, sought or found the help that she needs or really got a handle on what's going on with her. And that you get the feeling that, you know, the, the mother's probably tried her best and, and it's just kind of at her wit's end. Like she just, she, obviously she cares about her daughter and wants to help her daughter, but just doesn't really know how or have the yeah. tools to. And when she says that thing about, you know, like, I, like I'm just a person, we're both adults, you got to kind yeah. You gotta, you gotta help me. You gotta meet me halfway here. Yeah. I thought it kind of really, kind of gives her a bit more dignity, or kind of humanizes her in a way where you think like she's probably been dealing with this stuff for a very long time, and it's just kind of at her wit's end in, in terms of uh, finding like productive or successful ways to, to help her daughter, which yeah. she obviously wants to do, but just you know can't. Yeah, and I mean like the support roles when it comes to to mental health issues and I'm really not trying to like other Christine or people who suffer from mental health issues mm-hmm. at all um, but I mean like that can be a whole thing too right where like Peg is doing her best yeah. and then if she decides that she needs that in you know in interest of her own well-being she needs to like you know put her foot yeah, down yeah. or establish boundaries then you know there's not she doesn't necessarily know how Christine's going to react to that. And to Christine, that may come across like a, like a betrayal of the support systems that she needs. And it's very difficult to, to, to find like a successful method to kind of help someone who's suffering uh, with a mental illness because different things work for different people. Right. I mean, you know, everyone always immediately defaults to the medication. I I personally am not a huge supporter of, of psychiatric medications. Having been on several of them myself, I, I think, um, uh, you know, medication works for a certain percentage of people that are suffering from from mental illnesses and disorders. But also, if if you're not metabolizing it properly, it can uh, not just be ineffective, but also increase or worsen the exacerbate. Symptoms. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. And so, it's not always. Uh, and sometimes, uh, a medication that maybe helps with one thing will will also give you like another ten side effects of other <laughs> things. You know, one that might alleviate depression might make you extremely anxious, or one. You know, it's it's very it's a very slippery slope. And 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 I do think that although they they, they do help certain people and are beneficial for certain people with certain disorders, they really do kind of overtly judiciously give them a, I, I think they're very um i think they kind of hand them out like like candy to people these days and i, I don't think that's necessarily the right answer i think um for some people it, you know it, it's diet and, and exercise and for other people it's therapy and and uh 
you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is some people, it's psychiatry is the thing for other people. It's psychology, just having someone to talk to for some people. It's, you know, be, being healthy, you know, exercising yoga. There's, there's so many uh, vitamins or, or, or like meditate, say like something like meditation, like transcendental yeah. meditation. There's so many different uh, ways to combat these afflictions. And it's literally like different methods are, are more successful on different people. You know, some people medication might be the thing for other people. It might be like diet and health and exercise for some people. It might be meditation for some people. It might be like talk therapy or group therapy. Uh, you know, there's so many different things and it's hard to know like which shoe is going to fit, which specific person. Right. I mean, it's, it's something that's very individual. I think these days, this is the sort of psychiatric industry kind of, um, I mean, they don't do testing on individ specific individuals' brain chemistry. They don't. They just kind of try this or try that or here, try this drug or I'm going to slap you on this or that. Mm -hmm. And they, it's not tailored to the individual. It's very difficult to kind of figure out what is the right um, sort of solution or, or method or something for, for the, uh, each specific individual to try. Obviously, this is a journey that, that people have to take. Um, and try different things and and you have to be very brave and you have to be very dedicated and if you you know and eventually you might find something that works for you you know what works for one person doesn't necessarily True. you know work for everyone but back then especially when this film took place like in 1974 just the 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 scope of knowledge that that people had about mental illness and mental disorders and the the resources that were available for people suffering from these types of things were, were, were so much vastly inferior. I mean, it was very largely uncharted territory back then. So for someone like Christine Chubbuck, who was obviously suffering from some very serious, uh, you know, I don't know what to, disorders or ailments or illnesses or, you know, I feel like it was a lot more difficult for somebody in an earlier time period like that to really seek out the help. Plus, I mean, nowadays people talk about mental illness a lot more frequently. There's a lot of people suffering from it. A lot of people have been more public about it, even like celebrities and people in the media and things like that. It's not quite as much of a stigma as it was. But but back then, I mean, the further back you go in history, I mean, it was very stigmatized and a lot of people weren't comfortable admitting that they were you know, having problems like this, you know, because they could be judged or, or demeaned or whatever for it. So a lot of times people suffering with these types of issues would just keep them to themselves. And then obviously that would just compound the problem. Like what happens with Christine Chubbuck, where you get the feeling she's been living in this very self-deprecating, lonely, isolated state for so long that she almost has become entirely blind when someone does try to reach out to her, or when someone does care about her. Uh, you know, and, it, and it's almost like having horse blinders on where, you know, you spend so much time in this kind of interior state that that it almost kind of warps your perception of reality where the world that you see or the, the perception of yourself that you have is no longer accurate necessarily or it's, it's not the necessarily the person that other people see or the person that you are. I think things can become very distorted, you know. <laughs> not really sure no, how to I'm end just, that properly. No, I'm just uh, like I'm I'm trying to take the random stranger's Twitter advice and figure out how to frame this movie where Christine's death by suicide is not inevitable. I mean, like, it's still... Well, it's, inevit it's inevitable in the sense that it's a historical fact that actually happened that they can't get away from. Like, sure. Which is kind of like the film when you're watching it has this kind of ticking time bomb effect of like, you sure. know, th this is going to happen. 
no matter how much we don't want yeah, to. Yeah, and I mean, like, you know. there's this, I mean, it's this, it's this terrible confluence of events where, like, the way they set it up in the movie, I believe, is more dramatic than anything specifically that happened to Christine Jebik in real life. But, you know, that the the day before she dies, you know, she, she thinks she's going on a date with the guy she's been... Right she's been lusting after for the last year, the guy who decided to approach this seemingly unapproachable woman. Right. And she thinks she's going on this date. And then the date is the most disastrous, heartbreaking date where they go on this nice dinner and she's all dressed up. You know, she's for, for as much as we've talked about her, you know, her body language and her kind of like more, more boxy sort of, shape to the way she dresses with long skirts right. and everything like that. Like she, she knows how to present as yeah. pretty in that she, she gets dressed up and mm-hmm. she looks pretty for her date and she's excited about this and she allows herself this kind of outward expression of giddiness with yeah. Peg that we haven't seen before. Like most of the time when Christine gets happy she yeah. shuts it down as soon as there's an audience to it. Like we see that at the very beginning when she's singing along with the car or in the car. And then as soon John as somebody's- Denver. John then, Denver. Yeah, and, Ann's song or Annie's song. And as soon as somebody's driving by and could see her, she's like, no, oh, she just yeah. shuts down. And you're like, you're a TV personality. <laughs> what are you doing? Or when um, George is trying to get her to play pool with him at the party at the at the uh, uh, Fourth of July party. And she, yeah. you know, and she's kind of, oh, I should go. I have work to do and stuff like that. Like she's, yeah. she just won't allow herself to kind of. Well, I, th- I think be happy or relax think, or anything. Yeah, I got the feeling more with that that it was just like she came into a situation that was already chaotic, yeah. and she likes to be in control. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's the the. Uh, the unpredictable element of alcohol being in there too. Sure. Um, but she, she she doesn't drink very often. She says right, and I mean George is already like sweaty three, three and drunk. Wind, yeah, and uh, and so it's it's a really unpredictable situation. But I can tell if he'd just been swimming in the pool and put his shirt back on, and or or if he's just a maggoty mess, like just a drunken. <laughs> oh, I definitely read mess, him as yeah. I definitely read him as maggoty for sure. But then finally she goes on this date, and then uh, and then the date sort of falls apart where they end up going to this group therapy session that I kind of got like like did you get a Scientology sort of vibe from it that um, it was like it was like an assessment sort of thing yeah where... not not exactly Scientology I don't think it was really like he was taking her to, into like a cult meeting or something I, th- I think it was kind of like kind of like on the Punisher like I think it was kind of like you know these urban fight club you know it all ties together um you know where these kind of a support group, group yeah. support groups for people dealing with certain things you know I I got kind of a culty sort of vibe from it because I got the idea that like George knew what he was doing when he invited her out for dinner and yeah. like put on the show of asking her out on a date. I got I didn't necessarily think that he was that sort of calculated, but I think it I think it kind of comes down to her paranoia because you know obviously you know people uh, suffering from from clinical depression and, and and different types of psychological disorder, schizophrenia, and so forth can can become very paranoid. And you get you get the sense of her paranoia throughout the whole film, like when she comes home and she hears her mother talking about th- this woman that's crazy, or she thinks she automatically thinks it's her, and her mother says, right. "No, no, no, we're talking about so and so from whatever, like a coworker or something." And and, uh, and then you know, and she and she's always kind of on edge that you know that people don't like her, people are talking about her. And right. when her friend, it's her friend's name, uh, Jean, is working on that piece, she she kind of feels like she's um trying to usurp her position or kind of trying, you know, right. and 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 so I I feel like. In George's mind, George is, is the character we're talking about, yep. played by Michael C. Hall of Dexter fame, you know, who who kind of reaches out to her. Um, I, I feel like George doesn't necessarily do this 
in any kind of insidious or sneaky or malicious way. I think he, I think he notices that she's like, I think he, I think he notices that she's suffering with something. I don't think he knows exactly what or, or knows how bad it is, but I think he, he see like he sees her have that outburst about the flowers, the fake flowers that they put in the studio and everything. And I, I think he gets that she's, she's having some troubles because he, he tells her at that one point about how sometimes he sees the, the, the giant ball of shoelaces that he's trying right, to untangle right. and he realizes that that's his life and so forth. And he opens up to her, after the dinner they have in the car about how he used to be this like star quarterback football player with all these prospects but then he he injured his shoulder really badly and, and then he couldn't play football and, anymore and yeah, yeah got in dry and started really suffering from depression and that he went through like this really bad time where he felt like you know like kind of like really hopeless and he was in a dangerous kind of place and then he pulled himself out of it and kind of figured it out and i think that I think when he invites her out for dinner, it's almost like, uh, you know, hey, we've been working together for a long time. We never really got together. We never really got to know each other, have dinner. You know, how come we never sat down and had a drink? I think in his mind, he's thinking, I see that you're struggling with something and I've struggled too. Yeah. And I want to be the guy that kind of is there for you and kind of pulls you out of it. But I think because she's so fucked up about relationships and, and never having a boyfriend and really has this desire to, I mean, she's a virgin. She's never even been with anyone sexually. Or I think that automatically she's kind of like, Oh, here, here, here it comes. Here's the chance. This, you know, sexy coworker, you know, that I, that I kind of have eyes for. Okay, yeah. I think, which is part of what is really crushing to her about it. But I don't necessarily yeah. think that he was trying to be, overtly manipulative or, or crushing to her. I think he was trying to reach out to her because he I, did yeah, care about her. I think her. he was trying to be nice. I think that they had already kind of, I think like when he's talking to her at the 4th of July party, like he's more flirtatious and like is very complimentary yeah. to her. Yeah. And so I think that he's like, okay, I he has this, we'll call it group therapy that has worked for him and has helped him. Mm-hmm. What was it called? Like TA or TR or something like that? It was like um, transactional, transactional, like affirmation or transactional feedback or TF or something like that. It it was, but uh, so I, I, yeah, I think that he is part of a program that he thinks could do well by her. I also think that he knew that it would have, that he could have just asked her if he could help her right, right. and offered to take her to this group, but he takes her out to dinner and buys her dinner first. And maybe he figured that that was the only way to kind of ease her into it, you know? Like, right. Like... Right. So I'm just saying like, there is some manipulation. I don't think it's cruel manipulation, mm-hmm. but I mean like he, it, it's almost set up like, uh, you know, like, Hey, I'm going to invite you out and then I'm going to yeah. take you to a swinger party afterwards. And yeah, we'll, like, yeah. let's see where Had the evening trigger. goes. Yeah. Right. Like the, he, it's it's a really great scene he, that scene in the car. Yeah, it's he, really great because you see, like, she, you know, she's kind of so elated that she's sitting in this car with him. And she's kind of like, "Where are we?" And he's like, "Oh, I, this is my old high school. I used to go to school here." And he yeah. tells her the thing about being the quarterback and everything. But you see in the background cars kind of pulling into the parking lot, yeah. and you see her face slowly kind of become like she starts looking around like wait wait a minute like what like what's going on here what are all these people you know and there's that one moment where she says like wait wait a minute like what what is this like what is this place or whatever and he's kind of like uh right so then uh so they go through the therapy session or whatever and as far as she's concerned like this might possibly even still be a date (laughs) yeah yeah. this this is maybe part of yeah this is part of like he's this is part of what he does and he's sharing part of himself Mm -hmm. with her Mm -hmm. but then it's when he drops her off that the shoe really drops Mm -hmm. that no, this wasn't a romantic date. So that's crushing blow. One crushing blow. Two is that, uh, he finds out that, or he tells her that he's going to Baltimore, that Mm -hmm. he's getting the big promotion and that she's not, um, 
so there have been these these two big crushing blows where like the two things she has wanted the two yeah. very direct goals that she's wanted in life have been yeah. taken away from her. There's even that third crushing blow when she goes to the... Well, um, yeah, yeah, I was coming up to this. So, so she decides, she does this really bold thing, which yeah. is like above and beyond pretty much anything she's done, where she goes to the guy who owns the station and you know sets up her own little manipulation to get into his house. And she just like says, like, I want to go to Baltimore. What can I do to make that happen, mm-hmm. essentially? And yeah, there's that especially crushing blow where it yeah. turns out that yeah George is going to Baltimore but so is Andrea the yeah. the sports the hot like sportscaster yeah. woman like the blonde you know that, that just seems kind of ditzy and yeah and it know. and it turns out that like the the station owner is just like yeah. well yeah she's hot yeah, like, that that really confirms the whole kind of misogyny, the kind of patriarchal misogynist angle of the whole thing. Because Christine spends like the whole film trying to sell herself on doing these these uh, stories with depths, these, these community stories, stories about real people. When she when she does when she takes the kind of uh, uh, sensational story of that house burning down and focuses just on that man, you know, in the ambulance that's telling his story. That about, story you know, was so good. Yeah, it was so it was so interesting and so cool. And 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 you know, and they're saying like, but where are the shots of the burning house? And it's just some guy talking and stuff. And she's really trying to do this interesting work. And 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 she's this smart, capable woman. And she's really being assertive. And she's really reaching out, trying to to grasp the thing that, that she wants. And she goes to the um, what would you call him? The network, like the owner, or the head producer, or the or the. The guy who basically owns the network, you know, who's been who's been hanging out at the network for the last couple of weeks to try to poach some talent for yeah. like a, a bigger station in some other city, whatever, right? So, um, and she was really hoping that that she would be able to go with with George, this coworker that she that she has eyes for, you know. And he basically just kind of drunkenly, offhandedly said, "Oh no, we already made that decision. You know, it's going to be George and that 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 sexy." Uh, you know, uh, sportscaster, you know, the blonde, you know, that, you know, she's, re- you know, and I forget what he says. I don't know what he says. I, it's something kind of demeaning and kind of, you know, oh, like, you know, like about how she's her, her, her physical attractiveness or, you know, a million dollar smile or she has a cute ass or something. I can't remember exactly what it is, but basically it's like, it's this, it's almost like this huge slap in the face of everything Christine Chubbuck's been trying to do of, of, of trying to generate these intelligent community stories that have depth and, 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 and you know, and make people think and stuff. And basically Not she's... Not to mention, and also trying to make an effort to give the more salacious stories and like... Yeah. doing her own spin like trying to find yeah. the blend between she kind of adopts like she actually tries to to, to, to take uh, you know the, the sort of criticism to heart and, and, and go into this sort of more darker territory that she wouldn't normally go into but still put her own kind of intellectual spin on it and basically is just told no no we're going for the hot sportscaster the the the, the blonde chick you know or whatever the the cute ass or whatever like I, I forget what he says but it, it just seems so demeaning and it just seems like it doesn't matter how smart she is or how talented she is or how intellectually uh, stimulating her, her pieces are or whatever. It's basically just like uh, that blonde chick is hot and, you know, and, and, you know, she'll look good on camera, yeah. you know, and she, she'll work good with uh, with George and, the you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and know? then there's the fourth crushing blow where the station owner reveals that it was George's idea to yeah, take her yeah. because George and her are actually together <laughs> like that's yeah the... they've been having some kind of affair you know like uh, workplace affair or something it's it's funny the, the the film is almost just like a series of crushing blows one after the other just this this very expertly arranged it's almost like dominoes it's almost like a, it's almost like the film spends like its first two thirds like setting up all these dominoes and then in the last act just just taps the first one over and then they all just one by one come tumbling down i think the thing 
the tragic thing about the film and about Christine Chubbuck's life, if, if it was anything accurate to the film, is the fact that these kinds of things happen to everyone, to every person on the planet. There, there, there's always a moment. There's everyone has like a, that bad year or that bad month or that bad spell where everything just goes wrong. Maybe it's like maybe like uh, your wife leaves you and then you lose your job and then you know you know someone crashes into your car or something. Or just everyone goes through those things where just it seems like a like Tetris where you just like you know suddenly everything just piles up on you and there's just no way to get out of it. But the thing is like if you're in a healthy place emotionally like mentally you know if you if you have a good support system if you if you have a healthy self-image if you're doing things like i don't know like i said before it's different for everyone but if you're if you're exercising or eating healthy or meditating or you're on the right medication or you have a good support system you can get through these things i mean there's uh, people talk about midlife crises and things like that there's always moments in people's life where it seems like suddenly all the shit is just hitting the fan at once, you know, where they, this is going wrong and that and the job and the family life and the, you know, or a death in the family or a, a divorce or a breakup. And it's just all coming down at once. And, and it's never fun and it's always a slog. But if you're, if you have a good support system and you're in a relatively uh, stable place emotionally, you can get through it. You know, it's like it's like they say in Fight Club. You know, where you, you know when you when you hit the bottom, you know, there's only, there's only one way you can kind of go, and that's yep. up, right? And one by one, these things usually get better. I mean, yeah, maybe you know if you go through a divorce, you have a, a rough six months, but then you meet somebody new, yep. and then things start. You know, if you you get fired from your job, you know, you're you're, you're jobless for a while. You got to go on EI or whatever, but eventually you get another job. Or, you know, whatever the deal is, you know, maybe a loved one is suffering with an illness, maybe they get better or maybe they don't, but they're at peace. It's like, you know, all these things fall into place and it might even take a year. It might could take several years to kind of get yourself back, you know, on top of things again. But 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 usually, usually people do. But the thing because of Christine's specific issues that she was dealing with, because because she was already kind of so far down the hole. Of, of sort of like clinical depression and self-deprecation and paranoia and stuff like that. I think all these things piling up on her at once, she just couldn't dig herself out. You know, it was, it was just too much. She just couldn't see an exit. You know, she couldn't see like a, a ray of light sort of poking through anywhere that she could kind of latch on to. Yeah, one of the really frustrating parts in at least the way it gets performed is that Rebecca Hall makes Christine so affable and so charismatic and so self-aware no when she's made the decision that she's made about what what's going to happen next uh like when she talks to the station head and she really charms her way back yeah. into like getting that spot at the top of the show you know she's just you like, almost it almost seems like she's she's kind of doing all right again like yeah, maybe like she's, she's, she's got a good leaf, idea and you're she's just gonna... you're just like okay like where like Christy, like you've got this, you've got this yeah. figured out. Like even if you're faking it until you make it for a bit, like yeah. you've got this. And, and then, George seems to feel that way too, because the way he's winking at her, he's smiling at her, like yeah, like you know, and he really sticks up for her too. Like the station manager, um, is it seems like he's not gonna gonna give her this like prime time slot she wants to do this story or whatever. It seems like because they've had so much tension through the whole thing, and it seems like she's kind of that he's he's not gonna do it. And George, like this coworker who who's reached out to her. It seems like he really he's like, come on, man, you know, I, she kind of deserve, you know, just just give her this one chance. You know, he, he really kind of sticks up for her. And then the station manager is like, you know, all right, you say, please, you know, yeah. you know, it's you know, you know, you talk nice to me. I'm going to do something yeah. good for you or whatever. And, and he kind of winks at her like the George does, like uh, kind of like you got this, you know, like yeah. you, you see, like things are things are on the up and up. Yeah. 
what it did make me think of in terms of where maybe Christine's head is at is if you remember when she's talking to Dice, the the weird gun oh, guy, the, the Dias guy or whatever. Yeah, guy. when she's uh when she's trying to find out when she's looking for the more salacious stories, right. and she finds out that there's this guy who just like has everybody's guns <laughs> right he's like an automotive an auto shop guy that just works on guns sells guns has guns he's like yeah. a gun expert that all the cops go to and stuff right but he's also a uh i mean i'm not gonna say like a conspiracy nut but like a survivalist kind of guy or yeah something like that. yeah and he talks about a cowboy he talks about how life can be coded in like four different colors yeah and I thought it was interesting to kind of look at where Christine is at along these. So condition white is the same. It's just like where most people are that they're just kind of like going through life. Yeah. Totally vulnerable and unaware of, of any threats or surroundings. Yeah. And then uh condition yellow is you start to become aware of your surroundings. So right. that's kind of like where Christine is right. at already all the time. Uh, condition orange is awareness of surrounding and threats. threats yeah. Um, and then red is uh, when you have, when you're aware of of all of the surroundings threats. and threats and you're ready to take action against to take them. action yeah yeah and uh i mean that kind of language if i had heard that 2 years ago NRA. what what feels weird about dice is that dice is this guy feeling that way but he's also like surrounded by guns yeah and that's There's so many too he must have like 70 <laughs> it's, guns like it's 50 an or 60 guns absurd amount of guns handguns rifle shotgun it's like an entire back room that's just like a smorgasbord right. of weaponry so i mean like this guy in condition red fully armed that worries me. He's the Punisher, basically. Yeah, he's exactly. I mean, <laughs> Punisher in Condition Red. Yeah. Like he's at the point that he's willing Punisher to take lives action in Condition Red. Threats. He's basically lives and, and yeah. breathes in Condition Red. And I mean, when Christine gets to Condition Red because yeah. she has a gun in her hand, you know, like yeah. the the results are are extremely tragic. And it could also be sort of a like a, a roundabout, almost like kind of accidental sort of uh, comment on gun control as well. Because if if it were harder for her to obtain that firearm. She wouldn't be able to do what she did. It was so easy for yeah. her to just go and get this gun and just walk around every day with this gun in her purse and just get by bullets and then just say, take the gun out live on air and shoot herself in the head. I mean, yeah. if there were stricter laws for gun control, uh, you know, even pertaining to, to mental illness or people who are in or have been in psychiatric care or whatever for suicidal ideation or clinical depression or whatever, then she may not have been able to obtain the firearm that, that, that she you know, ended her life with. Yeah, and I mean, the, the when people talk about gun control, I think it's largely under-discussed that the number one cause of death by gun isn't murder, it's mm-hmm. suicide, mm-hmm. right? It's, I mean, by and large, my yeah. understanding is that suicide is largely a situational thing and that if you yeah. can get into a different situation mm. then you are likely to survive right well, if, you I think, can, if you can get outside of that moment but the problem yeah. is that because of the nature of a gun like there it's is a so good chance of and success easy to use and fatal it's so simple you just pr- press this button and you don't exist anymore i think the thing is with regard to what you're saying is that i don't think anybody really wants to die. I mean, I, I, I don't think really anybody on the planet really wants to die. The thing is, people want to not be in pain. Like, that's the thing, right? People don't want to be in horrible pain. I don't. Yeah, and, I mean, in Christine's case, I don't want to diminish the choices that Christine, either fictional or real, made. But 
so much of what changed for her was that her goals were taken away from her mm-hmm. and it required it drastically changed the direction of her life and made her feel like all of her goals were for nothing. Yeah. But also I mean thinking optimistically if she could have gotten past that to the point where it said okay so now I have reset my expectations I'm not saying that she should yeah. have like aimed for less in life that's not what I'm saying but if she had kind of navigated through that yeah. and gotten to the point where she could have seen the world in this new reality right. and understood that this is how the game gets played yeah and then applied her formidable skills and her you know her perception and her yeah. in some cases really uh capable self-analysis you know she could yeah. have applied that yeah and done the thing and figured out a way to do right, it like right. i do believe that at least the movie version yeah. which may be naive of me but like i believe that she could have fucking killed it at that yeah, station she, like she no did, pun intended she that, really did seem like uh, like a very capable intelligent person um and i think that uh, part of it too was the era because i think if she existed today she probably could have gone far because you know i mean he, here's this woman back then it's intelligent uh you know articulate woman that has all these ideas of, of how she wants to kind of better the station and kind of expand and you know and grow and she's living in this like very patriarchal society working this very patriarchal job dealing with misogynist bosses and station heads and stuff like that you know be, just being cut off at the knees at, at every turn of what she's trying to do but I think, like, were she t- to exist in today's world, not that it's entirely devoid of misogyny or, 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 or patriarchal c- constraints and stuff, but I think that she, she, were she to exist today, she, she could have probably achieved everything she wanted to achieve and not had as, I'm not going to say had any of, but I, I not had as much of, of the opposition that she dealt with in 1974. Yeah. I think you said an interesting thing when you were talking about uh, you know uh, her expectations Th- there's actually that scene where she goes to that sort of group therapy session with George and she's playing that game yes but with that woman that woman actually suggests to her have you thought about managing your expectations you know because they're playing this game where she has to say you know I, I want to do this or I want to do that and the other person but I can't you know and you know the other person says well you know have you thought about doing this or maybe you should try that and then the person has to say yes but you know, this won't work because of this or that. So they're playing this game and she's saying, you know, I really want to get this job, but it's gone to this, you know, um, you know, the woman saying, well, have you thought about, you know, managing, or, or she's like, I want to be in a relationship, but I, you know, I want to have a child, but they're saying I might not be able to have a child now. She's saying, well, have you thought about adopting a child? And she's like, yeah, but I always wanted to have my own child. And I want to be a mother. She basically is just saying, you know, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about this? And then there's that really heartbreaking moment at the end where she says, you know, like all these things like, you know, have you thought about adopting a child? Have you thought about just managing your expectations? So, you know, you're, you're satisfied with less than, than what you're shooting for now. And she says something like, I can't remember the quote of verbatim, but it's like, you know, yeah, but I've just always wanted, you know, to, 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 to have a partner and, 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 to, and to have a child and to do the, a job that I want to do that, and to do work that I believe in. So, I mean, these are, these are basically very valid, very simple goals. She, 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 she wants to, to have someone love her and to love them. She, she wants to create a life and have a family. She wants to do a job that something that she feels passionate about. She wants to do the kind of work that she wants to do. And she feels that she has something to offer in this field. And it's not necessarily incredibly unrealistic for her to have these goals, you know, just to, to meet someone that cares about her, to start a family, to do a job that she feels passionate about, that she's good at. These aren't 
necessarily super lofty goal. She's not saying she wants to go to the moon or she wants to be an A-list movie star or something. She's just saying, I want to do something that I feel passionate about. I want to share my life with someone. I want to, I want to have a baby. And I think, you know, the idea of having to sort of downsize or truncate these ideas, I think she's just kind of like, is it that unreasonable for me, a 30 year old woman living in this world to want to, right. to, to have a partner, to have a family, to have a job that I like, that I'm good at. You know, I mean, these, these goals don't seem that lofty or unrealistic. I mean, this just seems like goals that anyone yeah, would, I mean, would want to have. Yeah. There's definitely a, a helplessness that comes from being told that even fundamental yeah, dreams are, are un- too much are, are unattainable. And that's where, I mean, that's the, the mental gymnastics that I think that, you know, maybe that's me coming from a place of, you know, great privilege when it comes to right. to mental health and, you know, being able to, to navigate in that way. Like, I, d- I don't know what it's like to be, to have Christine's brain chemistry. Right, right. So, you know, maybe it's insensitive for me to be trying to tell her how to do better, sure. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we're, we're a little past the two hour mark at okay. this point. Um, we, we don't want to, we don't want to run into the, like the three hour, uh, <laughs> like, uh, conundrum of last time. Um, is there anything that you want to blitz through? I know that you want yeah, to I mention, blitz, like, I want to blitz through a few things. So one is, uh, Michael C. Hall. Absolutely. Great performance from him. Yes. And, Dexter. Michael C. Hall of Dexter fame. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just thought that he put on a great performance. I understood the appeal of him. I felt... Like I didn't want to approach him drunk at that party because I didn't feel socially equipped to. <laughs> like he was operating right. on a different plane than I was. The yeah. sweaty chest, the open shirt with the sweaty baby oil chest. Yeah, <laughs> did you just got maggoty. <laughs> yeah, maggoty. Um, uh, yeah, so just a shout out to him for that um, and for how how he played up the whole dynamic. They're yeah. like well intentioned, but I know I'm charming, so I can get people to yeah. do things, and I maybe don't realize the effect that I have on women, even though I get off on the effect that I have on women. Yeah. I like that character. Um, I I thought uh, I I found him to be a sympathetic character because I feel like, you know, and I already kind of uh, mentioned this before, but but I I feel like this is a character who I mean he he is the kind of sexy guy anchor successful you know, well liked kind of doing well kind of kind of character. But I think that you know because he did go through a thing earlier in life. He, he talks about the, the you know being the football star and having the injury and descending into depression and a drug addiction and stuff. I think. I do find it, you know, kind of interesting that, that he's able to sort of see that Christine, like, like obviously he doesn't understand exactly what she's going through or where it stems from or what's going on, but he does see that this coworker of his is going through a thing and that she's kind of, you know, kind of in peril or that she's, she's struggling and he does reach out to her knowing that he, that he, that he was in a place before where he needs, so he, he mentions this friend of his or something that reached out to him and kind of helped pull him out of this kind of yeah. funk that he was in. And so he tries to do the same thing to her, whether yeah. he does it entirely properly. I don't know whether or not he uses her obvious kind of uh, affection toward him. Or I, It's hard to say in the film whether he's kind of oblivious to the fact that she has this huge crush on him or not. But essentially, I think he does a good thing by seeing a coworker that's kind of in trouble, that's kind of struggling mm-hmm. and trying to kind of reach out to her yeah, and it, help her. I I do think there's something kind of endearing about the character, even if he is a little bit clueless or a little little yeah, bit of an yeah. alcoholic. It, or a, it, Until just now talking to you, I didn't realize how 
except for the boss because they have a clearly antagonistic relationship like literally everybody except for the sportscaster all right like really does like they try yeah and um, she pushes a lot of them away you, you get the feeling too with the uh the the, the weatherman guy that, that he kind of likes her a bit there's yeah. a thing at the near the end where he kind of asks her out like for dinner or something and she yeah. kind of blows him off or whatever but it's you know it's after she's <laughs> she, she's already made her mind up yeah she's... and i mean even even like gene clearly cares yeah. And, yeah. and really wants to make an effort well, she does. She does have this kind of support system that is there, like her mother and um, and her, her her best friend Jean and and George, the coworker, and in the uh, the weatherman guy. I can't remember his name. Like there are people there that are in her life that do kind of care about her. And but I think because she's so far down in the kind of hole of 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 depression and paranoia and self deprecation stuff that she just, I just don't think she really sees that these people really sort of care for her or that she could reach out to them. She might not feel comfortable reaching yeah. out. She might be guarded or embarrassed if even trying to talk to them about this kind of stuff. Yeah. She might not even realize that they can see that she's struggling as yeah. much as she is. Like she might feel that she's been sort of covering it up successfully. I think it's very easy to see somebody who is offering help as them just putting on a show right. and not actually caring about you and just not believing there's anything behind it. Right. Um, interesting too that you mentioned the sort of uh, the station manager or whatever you would call him uh, Michael who she does have kind of an antagonistic relationship with him and, and he, he does kind of come off at various points in the film especially in the first half of the film as kind of being somewhat of a villain like I don't want to say this isn't a film that has heroes and villains but I mean he, he does seem a, a bit like an antagonist because they're always at each other's throats and stuff but as the film goes on you kind of see that, that he's just this human being too and then he has a wife that maybe has a problem with alcoholism and he's kind of older and he says at one point I've, I've, I've staked half my savings into this station you know I, I, I do care about what's going on here you know I, like, I, I'm not just trying to be a hard ass for the sake of being a hard ass I really do care about making the station work and you know you see that you know that he, that he obviously has a lot of problems of his own in his personal life and everything and that he just seems like the kind of guy who doesn't uh, handle anger ver- like he's got sort of an anger management problem but there are points in the film where he does seem somewhat sympathetic to her where he does maybe like where she says something like shitty doom or something and you think he's going to blow up but he he doesn't or he or he or she he just the the way he behaves her at certain points like when she says oh i've got this new thing for you to look at and he's like oh okay and he kind of goes in and kind of gives her the benefit of the doubt or when she does that weird kind of home invasion kind of experimental thing and he says look uh you know it's it's interesting i just think you need to kind of maybe flesh it out a little more really like, you get the sense that he's not just this monster that 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 he is this person that's Obviously, she's she's been a maybe a bit of a problem employee or whatever that you may, like she's that it's not just it, like okay yeah he has said things to her that are kind of misogynist and dismissive and 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 uh, demeaning and stuff but but you get the sense that that she also can probably be a pretty difficult person to work with at times not take direction very well not respect authority very well and stuff and that and that that she's kind of a bit of a sort of a the pee under his mattress or the sort of thorn in his side <laughs> or whatever that she's she's the hair that's not quite in place you know and i think you know while we're on the topic of the bullet points i'm gonna i'm gonna do a shout out to 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 tracy letts um who plays this station manager character michael tracy letts is a very famous playwright he's an actor i think he started out as an actor he does a lot of theater and 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 the occasional filmmaking but but he is a a very well-renowned modern playwright 
Uh, he wrote the play Killer Joe, which William Friedkin turned into a film. He wrote the play Bug, which William Friedkin, uh, director of The Exorcist, also turned into a play. I think Tracy Letts' biggest claim to fame maybe is, is that he wrote the play August, Osage County, which I think won like a Pulitzer Prize or something like that, or a big theater award. And then they made a film version of it with like Meryl Streep and Julia Roberts and uh, a whole, uh, it has like a star-studded cast. And so, so it's really interesting to see him act because I actually kind of discovered him as a playwright for, through like Killer Joe and Bug and August Osage County and everything. And and uh, and then later was kind of like, oh yeah, Tracy Letts was in that film or he's in that film. He, he doesn't have too many like kind of big starring roles. He's mostly sort of a character actor that plays like a, kind of a side character but he's actually quite good I mean even though his character in the film is not necessarily a very likable character he's not necessarily a very warm or likable character he is actually quite good in this film the whole cast I should say like 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 you know I talk about Rebecca Hall a lot but the whole cast Rebecca Hall Michael C. Hall unrelated um and Tracy Letts and um just just everyone in this film is very good Another bullet point I wanted to mention also was that uh, the whole Christine Chubbuck story allegedly was an inspiration for Patty Chavsky's script for for Network, the the 1976 Sidney Lumet film that's thought of as one of the greatest films of the entire 1970s. Uh, It's directed by Sidney, Sidney Lumet, written by Patty Chavsky. And, and and obviously contains the the famous line I'm mad as hell and I'm not gonna take it anymore. You know, Peter Finch. Uh, you know, it's it's about this character Howard Beale that uh, that announces he's he's like a a network anchor that announces that he's gonna commit suicide live on television and then becomes this kind of I think they call him the Mad Prophet of the airwaves or whatever where they give him the show where he just basically he's basically losing his mind. He's basically this like you know. Uh, I'm not sure how old he's supposed to be, middle-aged, definitely, maybe 50s, 60s, you know, guy who spent his whole life as a news anchor, and he's had this nervous breakdown. I think they mentioned at the beginning of the film that maybe, like, his wife died or or maybe, he, like, he lost a child and his wife left him or something, and he started drinking heavily. But but essentially, something just snaps in this guy, and he and he's basically starts, like, gradually losing his mind, you know, like hearing voices and things like this. And so instead of getting him the help that he needs, you know, because it is 1976, they just... The sort of ratings hungry sociopathic uh, higher ups at the network give him his own show right. where he just starts expounding on all manner of kind of a existentialist kind of uh, paranoid anti establishment kind of um, existential kind of diarrhea. And uh, some of it is quite funny. There, there are people that say that Patty Chayefsky, um had already started writing it before that. And that, and that it was just a thing that he was doing. And then other people say that it was the Christine Chubbuck incident in 1974 that that inspired it. I guess uh, maybe we'll never know, but but it is just uh, you know an interesting kind of aside that uh, that two years after the Chubbuck incident, this this film came out about a network, a struggling TV network, right. where an anchor th- said that he was going to kill himself live on on air. And... All right, man. Well, let's wrap this up the way that we always do. Very straightforward. Either a thumbs up or a thumbs down on your Netflix profile and an MVP if you can pick one. Okay, I'm going to give this film a very enthusiastic thumbs up. I I would say that this is one of the best most kind of emotionally disarming films I've seen in probably the last decade or so. A very difficult subject matter, I th- which could have been handled in a very exploitative, very uh, you know inappropriate way. And I think that I would say, in my personal opinion, I think they, they did it justice. I think that they told this woman's story in a very 
Um, I don't think they shied away from things, or, 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 but I think I think they rendered her story in a way that was respectful, in a way that was, uh, you know, um, empathetic, and uh, and so I would give it a very enthusiastic thumbs up. And my MVP for this film undoubtedly has to go to Rebecca Hall. I mean, there's there's obviously a lot of great people in this film: Tracy Letts, Michael C. Hall. I can't even remember the name of the guy that wrote the script. I actually can't. I, I apologize. His, his name has escaped me. And and Antonio Campos for 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 rendering a very well directed film, a very a very nice looking uh, Craig Shillowich or Craig Shillowick, I guess, is the the script writer. Um, a script that that is uh, respectful and occasionally actually kind of funny. Some of the absurdity of the stuff that's going on at the station, uh, some of the newscasts when they're talking about um, uh, erratic flight patterns of a pelican and stuff like that. And, you know, there's, some, there's, there's actually some very absurdist kind of, uh, like when she's listening to the police radio and this random police officer says, I finally touched Maureen's pussy last night and stuff like that. Our sales of lemons are on the rise in Southern Florida. <laughs> there's actually quite a, a few kind of a, uh, humorously absurdist touches of just the kind of, bizarre shit that they have to report all the time but anyway um yeah i think the film also is very very nice looking and very well directed and very um slick um but yeah rebecca hall undoubtedly is my mvp for this episode i mean i talked about it earlier but i mean just the the physical transformation uh that, that she that she she does uh, with herself in this film just the 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 like a whole different voice and the whole the gait and the way she carries herself and her kind of stoop and her kind of tomboyishness and and her sort of manliness and the and the awkwardness of the way she interacts with her coworkers and stuff like that it's a it's a tremendous performance by Rebecca Hall and I was absolutely like dumbfounded that she did not get an Academy Award nomination for this. I saw this film at TIFF at the at the Toronto International Film Festival. I think it was 2016. I as soon as I saw the film, I thought, boom, that's it, in the bag. Rebecca Hall delivers the best performance of the year, best actress, uh, Academy Award, in the bag, like, no question. I thought the film would be recognized, too. I thought it, it might be nominated for Best Picture. I thought at least for a Best scre- Original Screenplay or Script or whatever it's called, um, and and was just absolutely dumbfounded when the Academy Awards rolled around and it didn't even get a mention, didn't even get a mention. It was not nominated for best picture. The script, I don't think was mentioned at all. I don't think anyone even involved with the film in any way was mentioned. Uh, but the thing that really broke my heart was that Rebecca Hall did not receive uh, a best actress Academy Award nomination because I thought that this was a tremendous performance uh, that was disarming and heartbreaking and endearing and and just and knowing what she's normally like in other films like knowing how she's she's this very demure beautiful very ladylike um, personality you know the fact that she kind of transformed herself into this very kind of kind of uh, gruff kind of tomboyish awkward kind of manly character and just pulled it off with such grace and poise as well and 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 still could at times come across as being very beautiful or being very sympathetic or very endearing or almost kind of sweet or cute in a way um i i thought it was tremendous and and i thought that it was a a great disservice to to her and her performance to to not mention this the i, I the academy award that year went to emma stone uh for la la land and uh, and and no offense to Emma Stone or Emma Stone's uh, performance or anything, but I just thought that 
you know, like that thing to me. I mean, the the, the caliber of performance, you know, when you when you compare this this kind of musical you know um to to the the weight of of what rebecca hall did and christine i mean i feel like it was a great disservice i i feel like you know uh, not that emma stone's performance in la la land was bad or anything like that but but just that um i just feel like rebecca hall was operating on a, on, a, on a whole different level here and 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 that she did something that, that she should really be proud of and did justice to to this real life person uh, you know that 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 had gone through this 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 real ordeal, and I just um, I find it heartbreaking that that she hasn't gotten uh, the recognition that I feel that she deserves for for this performance. You know, I'm sure anybody watching it would would acknowledge or recognize that it that it's a terrific performance and that and that she did great work here. But I just feel like, for her sake, not not that the people do these kind of things for awards or whatever, but I just feel like it would have been nice if there was a bit more recognition for this great work that she turned in on this film. For myself, thumbs up. Um, I'm not entirely sure that I've answered all my own questions about kind of the, the responsibility of having this story out there. But I mean, at, at the very least it elevates the humanity of Christine Chubbuck beyond just an entry in a list about people who have died on screen. Um, and then, yeah, Rebecca Hall, for all the reasons that you said, I mean, it's, it's two hours of meeting and empathizing and understanding or trying to understand or kind of becoming friends with a character that you're not ready to let go of by the end of it. And I think by and large, that's the point. And so much of that is how Rebecca Hall brings that character to life and then to not life. All right, man. Well, not to end it on a on a dour note, but uh, thanks so much for doing this and for coming back again. And f- Thanks so much for having me. I always uh, really enjoy talking to you and uh, discussing cinema and um, modern culture. Uh, was there anything that you wanted to, to plug? To, uh, I mean, I, I mentioned it already in the last podcast, but uh, I'm one of the associate producers on a great documentary about David Lynch. It's called David Lynch: The Art Life. Um, it's a, it's a really cool documentary, not just not just about Lynch himself. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's going to appeal to 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 aficionados of David Lynch's work, but it's just a great documentary about um uh, the creative struggle in general, like of 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 wanting having uh you know wanting to go into the arts as a profession or a vocation, and all the kind of opposition and difficulties you know uh, when you're are not quite established yet you know people you know like uh, parents telling you you should you know get a more stable uh you know you should you should uh you know maybe maybe get a more serious kind of job or people telling you it's never going to work out or whatever. so it's just a great it's a great documentary about someone really struggling to you know make it in this kind of field that that's something that's difficult to break into but they're incredibly passionate about so it was released on the criterion collection uh and i believe september uh and it's available uh criteria i think it's criterion.com um on dvd and blu-ray uh, i would urge anybody uh interested in either david lynch or just the creative process in general to check that out also i just want to plug the publication i was talking about earlier cinema sewer um, it's edited by my friend Robin Bougie, uh, who just has a vast wealth of knowledge about all manner of clandestine aspects of 
film culture and and uh, pop culture and and pornography culture and sleaze culture and and uh, art culture and you know he's just a, a great guy. You know he he has this publication. It's called Cinema Sewer. I'm looking at the website right now. It's www.cinemasewer.com. Um, I would highly recommend these uh, collections. These sort of uh, uh, soft cover book collections. There's six volumes out right now. Uh, I think they're about 25 bucks a piece, maybe 20, 25 bucks each. They can be purchased through his website or on Amazon or chapters or anything like that. Uh, and they're a lot of fun. I, I, I always joke around. I always say they're the best bathroom reading, you know, the best toilet reading you're ever going to find because <laughs> there's just, there's just so much crammed into these volumes, you know, and it's all like, you know, like tiny little print, you know, and like uh, stills from obscure films and, uh, um, drawings and you know all kinds of stuff uh, not safe for work I suppose I should mention you know there's a lot of pornographic drawings and uh, explicit photographs and stuff in but it, but anybody that has an interest in, in, in the sort of annals of uh, quote unquote annals of of uh, cinema and pop culture in terms of you know adult films or slasher films or grindhouse cinema or horror films or 70s 60s stuff sleaze culture independent comic books any, anything like that the thing is just a, a, a veritable cornucopia of uh, of information about this kind of stuff and they're so fun to flip through you know and uh, and so I just uh, because uh, the cinema sewer is where I very I believe I very first learned about Christine Chubbuck through reading an article uh, you know in one of the volumes I, I'd like to give a big plug to that um, Really fun book, you know, and so yeah, so so yeah, Cinema Sewer and uh, and David Lynch's Art Life. That's that's all I have to say tonight. That's awesome, man. Well, thank you again for doing this. For doing Thanks. two back to back. That's back a, to back. What is it? Uh, two two in the same month or something like that? Or is yeah, there... it's been a while since that's happened. So uh, congratulations. And they're strangely they're strangely kind of interrelated too because uh, you know we talked about the Punisher and Christine Chevick in 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 the last podcast, even though I hadn't seen the Punisher yet, and yep. and the Christine thing was just an aside. Yeah, this but, is uh, really a, a spiritual sequel. They're sister podcasts, so you can go back and forth uh, <laughs> from one to the other. All right, man. Thanks again. Thanks so much, Dylan. And that's it. That's pretty much everything for this episode from the Netflix podcast. If you liked what you heard today, head on over to netflix.ca to check out the rest of the Netflix content, like show notes, articles, and reviews. In today's show notes, as I mentioned, you can find some links off to some suicide prevention resources uh, as well. Uh, The other things that I've linked off to are... Uh, got your six which is the uh, veteran certification program where uh, a veterans advocacy group uh, gives what they call their six certification to media that portrays veterans accurately and responsibly so we've got a link off to that i've made sure to link off to cinema sewer the publication where jeremy first heard about christine chubbuck as well as specifically a place where you can buy volume six where Jeremy himself does an interview with Ginger Lynn Allen. And lastly, I have included or embedded, I have embedded the first tweet from the Twitter thread from Rebecca Ruiz that I mentioned uh, regarding how S-Town handled the topic of suicide and that 
hopefully uh, elevated my own awareness of the responsible ways of discussing this subject. So feel free to go into that thread, read it all the way through, and hopefully learn something yourself. Uh, We've also linked off to the other episode of this podcast that was briefly mentioned, which is episode 83, which is the last episode where Jeremy and I discussed the San Junipero episode of Black Mirror. That's it for the show notes. If you want to support us on social media and see what else we're up to, you can follow us on Facebook as Netflix, on Twitter at NetflixPod, where you can also find me at Dylan Clark Moore, and we're on SoundCloud as Netflix Podcast. You can also find me on Letterboxd, the movie diary social media platform, where I am there as Dylan Clark Moore. If you'd like to support the show, there are a few ways you can do so. You can start by heading over to iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast platform you prefer, and subscribing so that each new episode comes straight to you. While you're there, you can drop a rating and a review to let us know what you think. And even more importantly, be sure to tell your friends about what we're doing here, because they trust you a lot more than some stranger on the internet. If you're feeling particularly nasty, that's a terrible choice of words, uh, supportive will say uh you can contribute directly to netflix by way of our patreon campaign patreon's a monthly subscription service where you can contribute as little as one dollar a month to helping this whole project keep its legs under itself if that sounds like something you'd like to do you can search for us at patreon.com or you can hit the support netflix button at the top of netflix.ca This podcast is produced and edited by me, Dylan Clark Moore. The theme music was provided by Zach Moore. Thank you very much for checking out this episode of the Netflix podcast, and be sure to join me here next time for a whole new conversation about a whole new movie from the Netflix catalog. Because even if you think you've seen it all, you ain't streamed nothing yet.